0: What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking, brought to you by ArtofMagic.com. Our guest for this episode is the one and only Jason England. Jason was kind enough to invite me over to his house when I was in Las Vegas, and he gave me a tour of all of his super cool books and collectibles and puzzles and neat things that he likes to have around of course in the episode we talk about magic we talk about cheating we talk about gambling we talk about subcultures we talk about his crazy sweet tooth scuba diving a bunch of other stuff it was a lot of fun and jason is such a cool interesting knowledgeable guy i'm sure you all know this we're all huge fans of jason myself very much included i learned a lot of my gambling technique from his theory 11 videos so i was nerding out the whole time and it was great to sit down and talk with him jason co-produced and co-developed and directed and so on and so forth the unreal sessions and unreal tour videos with paul wilson so you can use the coupon code unreal mtp to get 20 percent off of the unreal tours and uh the unreal sessions if you haven't already join our newsletter follow us on all the social media channels like us on facebook instagram all that jazz. You know the deal. But if you don't, Instagram.com slash Magical Thinking Podcast, Instagram.com slash Treasury of Wonder, Facebook.com slash A Sense of Mystery, and Facebook.com slash Magical Thinking Podcast. Likes, shares. Uh, oh, also, if you guys wouldn't mind, I would super love it if you would rate the podcast on iTunes. I'm, I am I want to grow the podcast. I want more people to, to listen to it and be a part of it and Email me about it, and, and it would really help if you guys would rate it for me. So I appreciate all the feedback I've gotten so far, and I am very much looking forward to the episodes we have coming up. Anyway, Jason's great. You're going to love this episode. Email me. Let me know what you think. Enjoy. I had the
1: tour, which took a little bit uh, longer than probably needed to, but... We can talk about any of this stuff. We can talk about magic. Talk about whatever you want.
0: Why do you collect things?
1: Are we running? Yeah. Are we going? Okay. (laughs) Has this whole thing been uh, running? Oh, cool. Uh, There's a couple of things I don't want you to uh, to use. That's fine. Primarily stuff that I want to be a surprise at some point. Sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, But uh, let's see. Why do I collect things? It's a good question. Um, When I first started collecting Expert at the Card Table, I kind of did it accidentally. I used to travel in the military. And I always intended when I would get on a plane to go to some city, I intended to take a magic book with me and read it uh, on the plane. And sometimes I remembered. Uh, But many times I forgot to take the book. I was doing something else or we left on short notice and I didn't have time to decide on what book I wanted to look at. So I figured you know, when I get to this... City, wherever we're going, I'll just go to the local magic shop and I'll buy a magic book and read it in the hotel room while I'm there and on the plane ride home. And many times I would do that. I would do exactly that. But occasionally I didn't find anything I wanted. And so I figured, you know what, I'll just buy another copy of Erdnase and I'll read that. And so I did this four or five times and I got home from a trip one day and I went to put my copy of Erdnase that I bought in the magic shop, went to put it on the shelf, and there's already four of them sitting there. And I'm like, huh. I wonder how many of these things there are, and could I get them all? Of course, I was aware of the first edition, which I didn't own back then. But I thought, maybe I'll just try to buy everyone I can find and just see if I can make a little collection out of it. So that's what I started doing. I started buying every edition of Erdnace that I could put my hands on, something I still do to this day. If I run across a copy I don't have, I'll try to buy it. Mm -hmm. The only exception is I'm not interested in print-on-demand, and that's because anybody can do print-on-demand, and I'm not going to go out of my way to track down every cover that someone can come up with and put on the book. So back when printing books was hard, I was interested in the in the choices people made. Yes. Now that printing books is an email away, I'm not interested. So if one lands in my lap, I might take it and put it on the shelf, but there, I know for a fact that there are probably five or six different Erdnase covers out there in the print-on-demand world that I don't have and I just don't care. Not interested at all. But if someone does a nice hardback uh, with a cool cover or something, or even a nice paperback, as long as it's not print on demand and they actually do a proper print run of the book, uh, then I'm I'm interested and I'll take a copy. Other than that, uh, I pretty much slowed down these days because copies I don't have are few and far between Mm -hmm. uh, these days. So that explains how Erdney's collection started. Uh, the magic books uh, I don't consider to be a collection uh, sure. because I don't I don't collect them. They're consumable items. I'm just yeah. trying to read them. Yeah. Um, you know, doing my best to read them all. Um, now, obviously, it's kind of a collection by default. You know, when you assemble a thousand <laughs> magic books, it's hard not to say that you've got a collection. I do have a collection, but the goal there was not to assemble them all. Uh, The goal was to read them all. And reading them all and assembling them all is different. Yes, I do not read all of my Erdnases, you know, because the information is all the same. (laughs) Erdnases, I assemble and collect magic books. I do my best to read and then I stick them on the shelf for reference later. Uh, I do collect old gambling books. Uh, So some of those are... uh, are very valuable and i read the reprints and i collect the true first editions and the rare versions and stuff like that um so uh i yeah it's funny i i there are things in this room that i collect but magic books i actually i think i think it's only a collection by default uh i do have a couple of nice magic books that are probably more collectible than anything else but they're few and far between most of this stuff I read it in the bed and I throw it on the nightstand <laughs> and, you know, I read it on the toilet and I throw it on the sink, you know, and, you know, I take them with me in the car and stuff like that. And I don't care anything about the collector value to them because most of the time there's not any. Sure. Uh, but more importantly is that it's, it's just a source of information for me. Um, and they're, they're, they're as a, they are as collectible as textbooks as far as I'm concerned for the most part. Um, obviously the really rare stuff I don't read on the toilet or, you know, in the (laughs) bathtub or anything like that. But, uh, but most, most of the rest of this stuff, you know, that's, they're just textbooks. What's your favorite bathtub book? Uh, ooh, favorite bathtub book. I don't know, some, some paperback copy of Erdnase. I, I can't tell you how many copies of Erdnase have been kicked into the tub by the dogs or whatever, but you know, I'm always reading some $2 reprint. I'm never reading the good stuff.
0: Yeah. Um. How old were you when you started collecting nerd hmm. nays? Because uh, I, I want to work backward to when you early became 30s? fascinated with the book.
1: Yeah, early thirties is when I actually realized I, I don't I, yeah, I could figure out how old I was in 2000, 2000, 2001. You know, mm. I was uh, not quite thirty. Um, so so i was born in seventy one. So in two thousand one, I was I was thirty. I was probably collecting a few years prior to that. So maybe in my late 20s I started and then in my 30s I really hit my stride. I bought my first edition in 2004. So I was that was right when I was in the you know the the early stages of building a nice urnays collection. I had a couple of second editions by that point, the, those Drake hardbacks. So it's not been that long, you know. We're yeah. we're right at I don't know, 10, 12 13 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's when that kind of started. Now, I had read the book in 1990, 91, yep. you know. Uh, and I loved the book from the from the 90s, but I didn't start seeing it as a collectible piece of art uh, or an objet of art until, like I said, uh, early 2000s. So...
0: When do you think, or what do you think about? Because it's been referred to. I believe Jared referred to it as the cult of Uh um, When do you? Th- when did that sort of crop up?
1: Well, it
0: probably I mean, Vernon I, was the. Yeah,
1: I would guess Vernon is res- largely responsible for a lot of that in the magic world. Um, but for a long time, the cult of Erdenes had like. Four Four members, you know, it was it was Vernon and it was Charlie Miller and it was the the, you know, the people around that circle in the in the back in the day, mm. uh, you know, um, you know, Dr. Daly, obviously, you know, was a, was a fan of the book. And, you know, so maybe it's maybe it's a little more than four members. Maybe it was 20 guys that really recognized that that book is special and it is a special book, even though it's a flawed special book. Uh, So there may be 20 guys that recognized it uh, in the magic world and really read and studied that book, most of them because of Vernon's influence, but not all. You know, Vernon and Charlie were contemporaries, even though Vernon was a little older. You know, he may have been older by, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. They were basically contemporaries for most of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think Charlie would have probably discovered that book on his own, but having Vernon, you know. Uh, really be the, the biggest champion and cheerleader for that book uh, for 100 years uh, certainly didn't hurt. The modern cult of Erdnase didn't come around to the internet age, you know, and I think um, uh, I think that guys like Ricky Jay um, are responsible for that, you know, with uh, making that terrific piece of his uh, you know, where he does his uh, his Queens assembly and uses a lot of, not all of, but a lot of the patter from the coterie of queens right out of uh, expert at the card table. So Ricky's put it on the map in recent years. Uh, guys like uh, me and Paul Wilson and Derek Delgadio and uh, you know guys like Jared Kopf who you know came to Erdnase from the people he was studying with in Texas. Uh, you know Bob White, who's you know, a direct student of Vernon and Miller's. Um, you know we are kind of the new guard. Taking the book forward. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the, the modern fascination with it really is a function of the internet and it's a function of just being mm-hmm. able to share information. Because now I don't have to meet you in person to tell you it's a good book. Mm-hmm. Now I can tell 100,000 of my closest internet friends that it's a good book by putting out one or two videos. And so that's what's helped to, uh, you know, cause this recent explosion in all things Erdnase um so
0: there you go why urnays do you think
1: um well i think it is an important book Uh and on some level the smart guys understand that yeah uh so that explains a lot of people's uh fascination with the book it is a good book yes and in ways it's a great book but it's still a flawed book it's not perfect um, so I think the really smart guys look at it and they say, man, this section is great, and boy, he was spot on when he talks about this, and that's absolutely true, and I have no idea what he was thinking here because that's completely untrue, or that's really an odd statement. Why would he say that? It makes no sense. So the book has its flaws, uh, to be sure, but it's a very good book. It created the template for the Modern Magic book. Uh, if you look at all the books prior to Erdnase. Uh, that covered card magic, um, count up how many illustrations they have. You know, look through uh, look through a book like uh, Sack's Slide of Hand and count the illustrations. And look through a book, you know, like, um, uh, well, this is not a magic book, but a book like Sharps and Flats or something mm-hmm. like that. Count the illustrations. You know, look through a book like uh, Koshit's Manual of Useful Information which came out in 1894. It's, again, it's a gambling, cheating book, but just look at the number of illustrations. Add all those books together that I just named, you don't have the number of illustrations that are in the expert at the card table. So here's a guy that really understood teaching these moves, and he knew that illustrations were critical. So there's not one illustration every 10 pages. Some illustrations have you know, two illustrations on one page, and that was the game changer. Mm. And the only other book from that era that I can think of that really understood the power of illustration is uh, uh, C. Lang Neal's Art of the Modern uh, Art of Modern Conjuring, uh, which came out in 1901, so one year prior to Erdnase, and actually used uh, photographs instead of illustrations. But there's a lot of photographs, which again, for that time period, very very uncommon. Um, but those two guys. Uh, whoever they were, they really understood the power of multiple illustrations, and mm-hmm. so that's another reason why it's a great book. Even if none, even if all the tricks sucked, that alone was groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's it's the template for the modern magic, modern card magic book. Um, it's as important to card magic and gambling as a book like Gray's Anatomy is to modern anatomy textbooks. Now, if you went and took Anatomy 101 at your local university, the instructor almost certainly isn't going to pull out a copy of Gray's Anatomy and hand it to you. They're going to use a modern anatomy textbook. Mm -hmm. But all of those books can trace their heritage back to Gray's Anatomy. If you take geometry, the, the teacher probably isn't going to pull out Euclid's The Elements and use that as your geometry textbook. They're going to use a modern book. But all of those modern books owe what they are to Euclid. You know, uh, if you're trying to learn physics, you're not going to crack open a translation of the Principia by Newton. Mm -hmm. But every textbook in the world on physics owes itself, on classical physics anyway, owes itself to Newton's Principia. So that's what makes Erdnace great. Even if we have progressed beyond his technique, in some cases we have, in many cases we have not. Uh, But even if we've progressed beyond his technique, even if we've progressed beyond his ideas, even if we find some of his ideas to be incorrect or crazy for, or, or he didn't explain himself very well. We owe modern magic card, magic texts. owe a huge debt to him for doing it right in the early days. Uh, so that's my, that's my biggest, uh, uh, biggest reason for saying it's a great book. Um, and I think, uh, that, you know, the, uh, the, the whole package, the history of the book, the fact that it is a great book and that some things you can absolutely learn right out of that book. If you want to learn about overhand shuffle controls, it's a good place to go. Mm-hmm. may not be the best place to go, but it's a really good place to go. And when you consider how old it is, now it's a fantastic place to go. Uh, you want to learn about top and bottom palming? Uh, you could do a lot worse than just turning to that 114-year-old book. Uh, could you do better? Could you find a, a modern version that takes all the best from Erdnay's and leaves behind the stuff that you know, isn't quite great and shows it a little clearer, describes it a little clearer? Yeah, sure you can. But uh, if you needed to learn from Erdnase, you can learn from Erdnase. And that's something you can't say about most of the books from his era. Uh, you know, the, the bottom deal is described in, um, in Sharps and Flats. Good luck learning from it. <laughs> you know, uh, you've got no chance of learning from it. You've got no chance of learning the second deal from uh, the Robert Houdin book, uh, Secrets of the Card Sharpers. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying no chance, but why would you bother? Why would you try to uh, try to learn from a, a book that wasn't a good teaching book? And maybe, to be fair, wasn't designed to be a good teaching book. But why try to learn from that when you could learn from Erdnace, who, for better or for worse, really understood proper instruction of these moves and proper descriptions of these moves? Um, so uh, I think the fact that it's a good book, the fact that it's an interesting book, the fact that we don't know who the author is uh, gives it a mystique that's hard to get away from. You know, uh, I think if we knew that Erdnase was some schmuck that put his pants on one leg at a time like the rest of us and he happened to dabble in magic and he cheated in a couple of private poker games and then he wrote it all up and that was the end of it, I don't think it'd be nearly as sexy as it is now. Because now we can all envision super cheat Walking around Chicago at the turn of the century and he could wow you with magic or he could rob you blind at the card table and he was super smart and he wrote this fantastic book and he was a genius and 80 years ahead of his time. We can fantasize all that stuff because we don't know. And yeah. when you don't know, you, you're allowed to have those fantasies. Uh, I actually suspect it's a lot closer to the former. I suspect that this was just some guy that wrote a good book. Um, and that maybe he couldn't do the moves in that book nearly as well as modern practitioners can do them, um, but uh, but I allow myself those fantasies because I'd like them to be true too, you know. I'd love to find out that Erdnase was the baddest dude walking with a deck of cards a hundred years ago, but the realist in me suspects that that's not the case. He's yeah. just a guy that somehow wrote a great book, uh, especially for the time period. So. I think you roll all that up together and you've got an irresistible story. People want to have a hand in uh, you know, in adding to the legacy of this book. They want to say they've read it, whether they have or haven't. They want to own a copy or two, whether they crack them open or not. Uh, they They know that they should have read the book. They yeah. know that they should understand the content because we've all told them that they should. And so I think some of them... Flip through it once or twice, and they read the sexy parts. They read the bottom deal. They read the second deal. They read some of the false shuffle stuff. They read some of the magic stuff. Uh, Ask someone that claims to have read the book to do the euchre stock for you one of these days. And they'll stare at you with this blank look on their face like, what? There's a euchre stock in that book? Oh, yes, there is. Knock yourself out. Go (laughs) go read it and learn it. Uh, And I understand why they can't do it. You'll never show it to anybody. I get it. But those are some of the tests that I do for people that say, oh, I love that book. It's fantastic. Really? Can you can you walk me through the Eucharist talk? You don't even have to do it. Just explain it to me. They have no idea what I'm talking about. I couldn't now. do it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's like... Um, uh, so that's you know it's a good test for stuff like that. Have you really read and reread and reread and reread this book? Mm. I bet you anything there's gonna be people listening to this right now that go, man, I've got that book. I don't remember a euchre stock in there anywhere. Well, not only is it in there, but it's labeled Euchre stock in big bold letters, you know, so it's definitely there. Yeah. So you definitely have to you gotta read it and reread it. And I find stuff in that book all the time that I obviously have read at some point in the past. I mean, the words passed in front of my eyes, but clearly I didn't internalize the information because here I am 10, 20 years later reading it again and going, oh, wow, now this makes sense to me or I think I understand what he's talking about now. I've had it wrong all these years or I thought about it wrong all these years. So it's one of those terrific books that returning to over and over and over again pays dividends um, for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And finding new stuff in the book, you know, it, uh, those instances start to spread out in your life. The first time you read it, you get a ton of new things. The second time, you get even more new things, but a little less. Third time, you get even more new things, but a little less. And, you know, after the after you've read it 30 times or so, you're lucky if you get one new thing out of it with every reading. So those new ideas and concepts and understanding points that you get out of the book from multiple rereadings, they become... Uh, less frequent over time but they're still there and that's the mark of a great book you know a really great book next question
0: (laughs) (laughs) how did you how did you get into magic and then I want to know how
1: you got into cheating Mm -hmm. so I always liked magic as a kid yeah my earliest magic memory is when I was approximately seven years old and I used to love to watch Johnny Carson I saw the mug over there. I was going to ask about it. Yeah, there's a story behind that mug. I want to know. So I used to love to watch Johnny Carson. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, Johnny was on late, especially East Coast time, where I lived in Knoxville, Tennessee. He's on at, I don't remember, 10 or 11 o'clock. And when you're seven years old, that's way past bedtime, especially on school nights. But I used to like watching the show, I think because... It was funny. My parents laughed at it. I laughed at it, even though I didn't always understand it. Um, but there was something captivating about it, even to a seven-year-old, you know. Um, and so, uh, and of course, Johnny had great uh, acts on all the time, you know, uh, vaudeville-style acts. You know, he got the juggler on one week, the magician on the guy, you know, fantastic guy Tim uh, Tom Naughty blowing bubbles on the Tonight Show. Uh, you know, I remember seeing that as a kid when I was probably. Eleven or twelve, uh, so he had all these great acts on, and that was what was really attractive to me. Was seeing all the cool stuff, not so much the interviews. Or, you know, I didn't understand the adult uh, interviews that he would do with with celebrities and stuff like that. But I understood all the cool juggling acts and magic acts and the funny skits. So that's what I liked. And I distinctly remember one night, again, I was about seven years old, and uh, my dad is downstairs on the couch watching the Johnny Carson show, and I had gotten out of bed you know to get a drink of water or whatever and just like in the movies I'm halfway down the stairs and I'm holding on to the railings of the banister and I'm looking through the banister and I can see in the other room the TV and I'm kind of trying to watch the Carson show even though I'm supposed to be be in bed four hours ago and my dad uh, he's nobody's fool he knows I'm awake and hears me walking around up there so he says hey you're supposed to be in bed but before you go to bed come down here for a second Uh, I think you might like this And so I, you know, I jumped at the opportunity to run downstairs and watch the Carson show with my dad. I get up on the couch and uh, it was a magician that was coming on. Johnny had said at the commercial break, our next guest is a great close-up magician or something like that. So my dad knew what was going to be on. And so I sit there and all I remember is hands and playing cards and aces. I don't know who the magician was. We could probably sort of maybe figure it out if we were, you know, if we could look at all the magicians from the Carson show from that era, you know, from about 76 to 79 or so. Somewhere in that range, if my memory is correct. Um, And, uh, you know, but who knows who it was? Maybe it was Skinner.
0: Skinner Um, was who jumped into my
1: Yeah, maybe it was, maybe it was, who knows? I mean, it could have been anybody from that era. And there was was probably half a dozen good candidates, but I don't really know. But all I remember is going, wow, that's great. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Seven years old. So uh, a few years later, I'm probably 10 or 11. My mom and dad go out to dinner. And they come back and they tell me stories of a magician that they saw at the restaurant that did all these great tricks. Uh, And they're, they're just describing these tricks to me. And I'm... Almost, I almost experience a magic effect by proxy. Oh, I love that. So my dad is describing the sponge ball <laughs> to me. And he says, this guy put a ball in my hand, and he had a ball in his hand. And then magically he made his join mine in my hand. And then at one point I opened my hand, and there was two dozen of them. So I didn't know who the magician's name was, but I knew the restaurant that they went to. Uh, so 20 years later, I found out who the magician was. It was Brian Gillis. Uh, Brian Gillis used to work at a restaurant called Buster Mugs, uh, which was on the river uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee. And that's the restaurant that my parents went to that night. And it was Brian. And, of course, we all know that he was doing the Sponge Balls back in those days. In fact, he did it on The Tonight Show. Um, And uh, so it's kind of cool that I, you know, 20 years later, figured out who they saw. Uh, So my reaction to their stories of this magic were... Good enough that they actually went out and bought me uh, a book, which uh, I still have. It's um, Bill Tarr's Now You See It, Now You Don't. Uh, And they bought me a set of cups and balls. Um, And I started playing around with them. And that book is often sold to beginners. It's actually not a beginning magic book, not a great beginning magic book, because there's some really tough stuff in it. Uh, you know, back and front palming, and you know, it's a manipulation book mm-hmm. with a few card tricks in it. But uh, so I looked at that book and I really liked what I saw. But again, it's manipulation, and you know, that's not really the kind of stuff that I like even to this day. But it was cool because I'm seeing some of these sort of James Bond. You know, gaff, you know, cigarette droppers. I don't know what a 10 year old is going to do with a cigarette dropper, but cigarette droppers and ball holders and all sorts of manipulation moves. So I, I'm fascinated by it, even though I'm not doing any of it, yeah. I'm not practicing these moves. I'm still fascinated by the concepts uh, and the secrets in this book. I did play with my cups and balls set. And I tried to do, you know, routines and ideas and stuff like that. Played around with it until I probably lost the balls and dented one of the cups or squashed it or whatever. And then I moved on from that. Um, in 1979, I was eight years old, the Dukes of Hazards, the number one show on TV, and um, John Schneider, the guy that pay, played Bo Duke in that show, John Schneider was coming to Knoxville, Tennessee. Now, when you're eight years old and the guy on the number one show on TV is coming to town to the county fairgrounds or wherever... Um, you go out and see him and he brought the general Lee you know he brought one of the cars and there was a photo opportunity and all that. So I got to uh, I got to walk up on stage and get my picture taken with uh, John Schneider and the General Lee and all that and I you know he just kind of do it in a line. It's you know like graduated from high school it's just one person after another <laughs> so you don't get to spend any time with them. but I did that at the county fair one year, eight years old, uh, nine years old maybe and there was a Svengali pitchman at the county fair as pitching Svengali decks and stripper decks. And so I walked over and again, I'm interested in magic even though I don't do any magic, but I Mm -hmm. like it. Like a lot of eight-year-old boys, I liked magic even though I didn't do it. So I walk over and I watch this guy pitching Svengali decks and stripper decks and my parents bought me one of each. So the little Fox Lake bridge-sized Svengali deck and stripper deck. Mm -hmm. So I take that home and I play with that for, you know, uh, a couple months until I'm sure I've got the Probably got this Fingali cards out of order and lost the stripper deck or whatever, you know. And again, I'm really too young to have these tools, but uh, I played with them much as I played with anything and moved on with my life. So all through grade school and high school, uh, I don't do any magic. None none whatsoever. Uh, I ran track and played football, but that's it. You know, dabbled in martial arts. But that's it. Um, no magic at all. I got out of high school the year they opened... A magic shop in my hometown and I'm just driving down the street one day and I look over and I see this magic shop It's called, it's called Eddie's Trick Shop and I think there's still one Eddie's Trick Shop left near Atlanta which is where it started um, so I go oh that sounds cool so I pull into Eddie's Trick Shop and um you know, like kind of like anyone else that wanders into a magic shop, I sort of bought one of everything on that top shelf. You know, the, all the five dollar tricks. Mm-hmm. So I get a ball vase and a thumb tip, and you know, uh, nickels, the dimes, and just every little five dollar slum magic trick that you can think of. But I remembered. Now you remember. This is ten years removed from when I saw the guy at the county fair, but I remembered the principle behind the Svengali deck. And I mm-hmm. asked the guy behind the magic shop. His name is John. I said, Hey. Uh, Or maybe it was a guy named Nick Roberts, who is still a performing magician in Tennessee uh, to this day. A great, great, great uh, kid's show uh, performer in Tennessee, Nick Roberts. I asked him, I said, hey, do you guys have a deck of cards where like, every other card is the same and they're all cut funny so that you can show them all the same or all different? They go, yeah, you're talking about a Svengali deck. So here I am, I'm 18 years old, 19 years old, something like that, and I'm buying a, a Svengali deck again. Ten years removed from when I had one as a kid, and same thing with the stripper deck. I mm. said, so "I remember that the deck where you can pull some of the cards out." Yeah, that's a stripper deck. Here's this. So I buy all this stuff, um, and I play with it, and I learn it. And now I'm really into this. You know, I, I have Color Monty, and I'm you know doing Color Monty for anyone that would watch. Um, but I haven't quite discovered the heavy duty stuff yet. The sleight of hand based stuff. Everything here is a gimmick. Either packet trick or slum magic, a little gaffed item or something. Uh, So I go to Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, My grandmother uh, lived in Memphis. I lived in Knoxville, opposite sides of the state. Mm -hmm. I go to Memphis in the summers. And I was going to be a counselor, a camp counselor at a, a summer camp there with the girl I was dating at the time. And so I thought, oh, magic will be cool. The kids will get a kick out of that. Yeah. So I go to the camp, and I take all my little magic things with me. And she
0: broke up with you. <laughs> oh, wait,
1: <laughs> just, that, that didn't happen until a couple of years <laughs> later. But, uh, uh, or a year later. But anyway, uh, so I go I go to the camp, and there's two magic shops in Memphis yeah. at that time. Uh, one was called The Fun Shop, and it was in Poplar Plaza. Anyone that's listening to this from Memphis knows exactly where that is. Uh, The other one was called, um, uh, let's see, there was the Fun Shop, and then there was Trick or Treat, which was uh, one of these businesses that makes most of their money during Halloween, but the rest of the year sold magic and costumes and gags and stuff like that. So uh, Trick or Treat was out in, I think, East Memphis, and um, the Fun Shop's right in the middle of town, kind of. And so I went to both, and at the Fun Shop, I ran into a guy named Jim Surprise, Who's unfortunately no longer with us, but Jim Surprise showed me my first card trick, my first real card trick, sleight of hand based, normal deck. You know, he showed me the Twins by Brother John Hammond, and Great trick. I knew just enough to be totally screwed. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> because I knew Spingali deck. Yeah. I knew stripper deck. I knew rough and smooth. Man, I thought I knew everything about card magic. And I knew Double Lift even because I had Color Monty. So, I mean, what else is there? Stripper deck, Svengali deck, Rough and Smooth, Double Lift. Is there anything else in card magic? Well, there sure was, uh, and I got to see some of it when Jim Surprise blew me out of the water with the Twins, which is actually a simple trick by my standards today. But I'm looking at this trick thinking this is a really good trick and I bet I know how it's done. I bet you those cards stick together like this invisible deck that I bought last week. So when he finishes that trick and lays out those four cards and I pick him up and examine them, that's when my head kind of exploded. Because now I'm fooled. You know, at first I thought I was just watching a cool trick that I understood. And then 30 seconds later, I realized I was watching a cool trick that I had no idea how it worked. So I'm like, whoa, what? hang on a second. What is that? And he says, ah, that's a... That's a trick in a new book by Brother John Hammond. It's called The Secrets of Brother John Hammond. It's that big yellow book over there on the shelf. So I walk over, take the book off the shelf. They let me take it out of the cellophane wrapper. Um, and I, uh, I'm i kind of like looking through it. And I didn't know the name of the trick yet. Uh, but he you know, he told me it's in that book over there. $40 for one trick. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm a kid working at summer camp. You know, $40, bucks, that's a lot of money. That sure is a good trick, though. <laughs> All right. I'll buy it. And so I bought the book on the strength of that one trick. Mm -hmm. And I actually sat in the car, and he told me the name of the trick. He goes, okay, now that you're buying it, it's called The Twins. You know, this is what you're looking for. So he didn't teach it to me, but he told me exactly where to go. It's on page 93 in the book, if you ever want to look it up. And so I sit in the car and I turn to that and I read it. Now, I can't do the trick, obviously, but now I understand how it works. Mm. And now I see the deviousness of this method of, you know, concealing that king of hearts the whole time uh, throughout the routine. And you get hit with the king of hearts at the end of the routine. He's been lurking in there the whole time. You know, that's the real devious uh, aspect of that trick. So now I'm kind of hooked on this cool sleight of hand card magic. So I have this book, that one magic book, Secrets of Brother John Hammond, I have it for a week because I, I'm working at the summer camp during the week. So, you know, Monday through Friday, I'm at camp. And this is 40 miles outside of town. Um, and so I don't have access to the magic shop. Mm-hmm. But I got to come home uh, on the weekends, come back to my grandmother's house anyway, on the weekends, and I'd take my paycheck, you know, my $150 or whatever we were making back then, For the week, and I'd take it, and I'd go right to the magic shop and, you know, spend uh, as much of the money as I could afford. So the next week, this is my second week in Memphis, summer of 1990, I go to the other magic shop, Trick or Treat. And there's this old guy. I say old. He was probably 60 at the time. You know, (laughs) so he obviously wasn't uh, a decrepit old man. But, you know, when you're 20, everybody over the age of 40 looks old. So I see this old guy behind the counter. And... uh, I'm like, uh, I'm looking at all the stuff. And he's like, uh, are you a magician? I go, I-, I like magic. I don't know if I'm a magician. You know, but I, I love magic. I'm just kind of learning. And he goes, what do you like? And since I've had The Secrets of Brother John Hammond for a week now, I say, well, I, I like card magic. You know, and he goes, oh, would you like to see a card trick? Oh, I'd love to. So he shows me triumph. Mm-hmm. Right out of Stars of Magic using the shuffle that's described in the book. He shows me Triumph. And again, I'm a little bit more knowledgeable now because I've been reading The Secrets of Brother John Hammond for a week, but I'd never seen that before. And I kind of fall back on what I really understood, which again, stripper deck, Svengali deck, rough and smooth. And if you looked at Triumph and all you had in your head was stripper deck or rough and smooth, it kind of makes sense that one of those solutions has to be how that trick works. Sure, sure. yeah. Uh, because let's think about it. Rough and smooth would actually be a way that you could do triumph, yep. you know. Uh, if all the faces were rough t- together except for one card, you might be able to pull off a triumph that way. And, of course, a stripper deck would explain how you could shuffle them together and then somehow unshuffle them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so I just was convinced, stripper deck or rough and smooth, or maybe both, I don't know. And he leaves the deck on the table and turns his back on me and walks away to help another customer. And so I'm left examining... This ribbon spread with a single card face up in it, and of course, I realized very quickly these aren't stripper decks. This isn't reference smooth. How the hell did that work? You know, how does this work? So, again, I'm fooled by sleight of hand, even though I knew a little bit about some gaff decks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So he comes back over, and he can tell that he's nailed me. His name was Richard Oakley, fantastic magician from Memphis. Again, no longer with us. Richard passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, and he can tell that he's gotten me pretty hard. Because I'm like, what is that? And he said, oh, that's in this book over here. It's called Stars of Magic. And it's $35. And I'm like, yeah, that's, a that's a lot. I just bought a $40 magic. That's that's a lot of money. But man, that was a good trick. Okay, I'll take it. You know. So now I buy Stars of Magic. Second magic book I ever owned in my life. Uh, apart from Now You See It. Uh, the Biltard uh, book. The uh, Biltard. Now yeah. You See It, Now You Don't. Uh, other than that book, which I didn't ever really do anything out of this is the second real magic book i've ever learned in my life or ever owned in my life so i go home i read the book and of course i'm blown away by the method for triumph um and i start practicing these tricks and learning them and um so now i'm hooked on sleight of hand with cards and i'm totally cool with getting all the information out of books because I had all this time, you know. I didn't have a. I'm living in a cabin with no electricity, so I don't have a, a VCR or, you know, of course DVDs didn't exist yet. Um, but I've got no other way to learn except from reading. Yeah. Uh, and so I got my two magic books, and I got my deck of cards, and I do the camp counselor thing during the day, and at night I'm reading magic books. You know, while the kids are, you know, playing or watching TV or whatever they're doing wherever they are. Um, and so now I'm hooked, and so I kept going back to. Both of those magic shops. Now, the thing about uh, the fun shop is Jim Surprise didn't actually work there. He was an attorney in town, but he would go behind the counter on Saturdays sometimes. Richard Oakley actually worked at the trick-or-treat shop, so he was always there. And so I started going to trick-or-treat more often, Mm -hmm. and Richard was instrumental in showing me the best stuff. Uh, Jim was a better card magician than Richard, but Richard, by far was the better overall magician. Uh, Richard Oakley had been had done nothing but magic and played the piano or played the, the organ, um, a pipe organ type thing. Uh, he had done nothing but played, do magic and play the piano his whole life. So he was a working professional magician most of his life. Um, and so uh, I would go back to Richard and he would teach me things and he would give me advice. I think the third magic book I ever bought was uh, Harry Lorraine's Close-Up Card Magic I believe that was the third book I ever bought it was certainly very early uh, Mm -hmm. I bought that book Um, great book, learned how to pharaoh shuffle out of that book learned my first overhand shuffle controls out of that book Uh, learned some tricks out of that book that I I still do to this day You know, just a great, great, great card magic book and very well written although I don't particularly care for certain things that Lorraine does with his uh, uh, with his writing but you have to admit the guy knows how to teach a card trick. Uh, so I've got these three books now, and that's my third week. And then my fourth week, I bought another one. And I think at one point, my grandmother gave me a hundred dollars just because she loved me, and I was a pretty good kid, you know. So now I got a hundred dollars, and I go to the magic shop, and I might have bought four books or three books or whatever. So. Uh, Richard Oakley turned me on to the Vernon stuff, Mm -hmm. obviously through Stars of Magic. But also back then, the Vernon Chronicles had just come out a few years previous, you know, 86, 88, something like that. And so the Vernon Chronicles are there. And I knew about Di Vernon because Di Vernon did Triumph, you know, my favorite trick at that point because I knew five card tricks, you know. So I'm like, oh, a Vernon thing. Oh, I'll buy that. That guy's awesome, you know. I knew he was still alive. Remember, this is 90. He died in 92. I knew he was still alive out in California somewhere. So I'm reading the Vernon Chronicles. I think I bought one, two, and three. And then uh, Volume 4 came out a little bit later. So, And those books to this day, I'll put them up against just about any other magic books out there. Um, The writing, Stephen Minch's writing is fantastic. The original source material, you know, Vernon's notes or the Servan Uh, The Sirvon notes about Vernon's material, great, great, great stuff. Tom Gagnon's illustrations are some of the best ever in magic anywhere. In fact, I have. Tom was kind enough to send me some of the original illustrations from the Vernon Chronicles books, and you could see them up there in those frames. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's one of the the finest magic illustrators ever, as far as I'm concerned, Uh, and a good friend and a terrific card guy. So I got into the Vernon stuff, uh, and actually I bought the... The Lost Inner Secrets series before I bought the Inner, Inner Secrets Secret series, yeah, uh, because at that time I, I couldn't find all of them. But I eventually bought all of those, and you know I'm just kind of off to the races. I bought Royal Road to Card Magic, I bought Erdnase, I bought Expert Card Technique, all in this one summer, and I had the time to read them, and mm-hmm. that was the really critical part. Because uh, nowadays my biggest problem is finding time to read. The, you know i don't know what i've got here thousand twelve hundred magic books or whatever plus the gambling stuff so these days my biggest problem is i don't have time to read as much as i want in those days i had nothing but time you know uh, at least in the evenings so uh that was it that was my beginnings that from the summer of 1990 i went from first of this june 1st i knew Svengali, invisible and stripper mm-hmm. that was it as far as card magic And by the end of August, I probably had 12 to 15 uh, fantastic classical magic texts, card magic texts, that I still refer to to this day. So talk about going from zero to 60, you know, in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually read all of those books cover to cover. I can still tell you that Triumph is on page 26. Uh, you know there's great tricks you know uh, impossibles on page 44 of the classic magical Larry Jennings. Uh, Paul Harris's invisible palms on page uh, 26 of uh, you know Las Vegas close up I remember these page numbers not because I tried but because I referred to them so often over and over and over that summer that they've stuck in my head and I can't get them out you know <laughs> um, and same thing with some of the, the trick order you know I can tell you that it goes the twins the Pinochle trick and then uh, the magic cards is the order in the Brother John book. The three tricks that use the Gemini count uh, or the Gemini display, if you prefer. Um, so those are the order. They start on you know the twins is on page ninety three, right after the description of the Gemini count. And these things stick in my head because I those were the only books I had. You know when you've only got ten or twelve books, you tend to know them inside and out. And so some of these books, I just know them inside and out because I spent an entire summer and then the rest of that year, just devouring them Um, and never looked back, you know, Um, joined the military a year or so later, continued to go to magic shops and buy, you know, card magic books uh, whenever I could. Uh, Barry Manley had a magic shop in Chattanooga, Tennessee called Chattanooga Magic and Fun. Um, I used to go right through Chattanooga going home on leave from the Air Force. I was stationed at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida. Mm -hmm. So to drive home to Knoxville on leave, I got to go right through Chattanooga. Barry Manley had, uh, at that time, he may still have it, I don't know, I should probably call and find out if it's still there, but he had a fantastic magic shop, Chattanooga Magic and Fun. And Barry was a book guy, and he knew his books inside and out. Just a terrific guy that really helped me out and showed me a lot of great stuff in the early days. So from Barry Manley, I buy... I can still remember the books I bought from him. I buy uh, Ortiz's first book at the card table, first uh, card magic book. He yeah. had uh, two other books prior to that. So I buy Ortiz's at the card table. I buy um, the Nash Trilogy, you know, Ever So Slightly, uh, any, uh, any Second Now, and Slide Unseen. I bought the Nash Trilogy from Barry Manley. I bought my first copy of Gambling Scams from Barry Manley um, in Chattanooga. And I'm sure that a lot of these other books probably came from there. And, um, you know, I'm just not remembering the exact titles. But a lot of my early books came from those three magic shops. And then when I finally got home... um, or when I was at home, I would go to the shop in Knoxville, Tennessee there, the one that kind of started it all, Eddie's Trick Shop, and I'd have them order magic books for me. Because now I'm an informed consumer, mm-hmm. and I could point to the ones in their catalog and say, hey, get this book for me. I don't have that yet. So I bought a, a lot of magic books through them. Uh, and that was it. You know, And now I'm, uh, I'm into magic. And so the, your second question, I know this was 20 minutes ago, but your second question was how did I get into gambling? All of it through Vernon. Yeah. So, reading the Vernon stuff, uh, you know, every other sentence, he's praising some gambler that showed him something, uh, you know, 100 years ago. And so, I'm like, man, if if I love Vernon, and if Vernon loves gambling, then I got to love gambling too, you know. So, how do I learn about this stuff? And I didn't know. I didn't know exactly where to turn to, other than The Expert at the Card Table, which I had that book then. I'd read it. I wouldn't exactly say I fully understood it Mm -mm. at the time. But, you know, and I struggled through some of the routines or some of the uh, moves and techniques. But I run into my buddy Jim Surprise at the Atlanta Harvest of Magic in either 90 or 91. I can't exactly tell you what year. I could probably figure it out. if I could send a few emails to people. But 90 or 91, I'm at the Atlanta Harvest of Magic. It's my first magic convention. Who do I see? Jim Surprise, the guy that showed me the Twins. So I run up to Jim and I say, hey, Jim, Jason, do you remember me from you know, a fun shop? He goes, oh, yeah, hey Jason, how are you? I'm doing great. Hey, I've been reading all this Vernon stuff, and I want to learn how to deal uh, seconds and bottoms and do false shuffles, push-through shuffles and stuff like that. Uh, can you help me? And he said, uh, I can show you the false shuffle stuff. He goes, I can't help you with seconds and bottoms because I don't do that stuff, but that guy does, and he points across the hotel lobby, and there's a guy sitting on a, uh, sitting on a couch there in the hotel lobby, kind of holding court with a few other people, and it's Gary Plants. So I walk over, and Jim introduces me to Gary, mm-hmm. and Gary uh, is kind enough to give me what could only be described as a lesson on <laughs> false dealing. And when I say lesson, I don't mean that in the formal sense of he showed me put this finger here put this finger here and push here and pull here. He didn't do that. What I mean is is he blew my mind watching flawless second deals, phenomenal bottoms and thirds and centers and greek deals, you know, you name it he he was doing it back then. Um, and he was doing it beautifully. And so I get to see all this stuff and I just my world is rocked and I'm mm-hmm. like where do you learn that? And he told me two names that I had heard before. Um, And I'd actually seen a few things before on video, but this was live, right in front of me, and I'm blown away. Uh, He mentioned uh, Richard Turner, a name that I knew. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, I may have even seen Richard's videotapes by then, but I hadn't had them for very long, if I did have them at that point. And um, so he mentions Richard Turner, and he mentions Steve Forty, a name that, again, I'd probably heard wasn't 100% sure who the guy was or what he did. But I go home and I buy uh, the the Richard Turner. At that time, it was two VHS tapes called The Cheat. Now it's available on one DVD, but back then two VHS tapes. And I bought the four Steve Forty VHS tapes of the Gamma Protection Series. And talk about eye-opening, you know, between those five videos and i say five it's technically six but the dice video c40s dice tape i watched that and set that aside i was like jesus christ i'll never be able to do any of that stuff that's that's magic you know i mean that stuff is so far ahead of anybody else it's not even funny as far as dice stuff goes so i kind of set that video aside i I looked at it in awe but i didn't do any of that stuff to this day i don't do a lot of it but i do some of it now that i certainly couldn't do back then so i've got these five uh card videos you know the the first three volumes of the 40 set and uh, the two volumes of the richard turner set and i tell you what you spend the rest of your life just watching those five videos and i have you know uh i got them all around the same time 91 90 91 i'm not exactly sure when but i spent the i've spent the last 25 years watching those videos and trying to be as good with a deck of cards as those two guys um in some cases i've succeeded and i do moves just as well as they do in other cases i'm still chasing them you know just depending on what move we're talking about um but uh i went to in uh in june of 94 so i've had these for a couple years now i'm watching these tapes in june of 94 i was transferred to okinawa japan um where i did three things i went to work every day Worked on aircraft back then. Worked on F-15 fighter aircraft. Mm -hmm. I went scuba diving on my days off and occasionally in the evenings after work. And I shuffled cards. That's it. Those three things. And I ate and slept. Um, And the least important of the three was going to work every day. But I had to do that so they didn't throw me in jail uh scuba diving was awesome and i loved it and i still love it to this day but card magic and uh you know watching those five videos uh were really all i did for two years because I, I couldn't take a lot of stuff with me so i had a few books with me but i didn't have all of them mm-hmm. i probably had 20 or 25 magic books over there but I didn't have them all the rest of them were at my parents house i probably had 50 or 60 by then um and so I'm watching these videos, and those two years of almost isolation, I mean, people talk about what books would you take to a desert island? Well, I literally took books to a desert island, you know, (laughs) and shuffled for two years, uh, but not just books. I took these videos um, to my desert island and went scuba diving and shuffled cards and dealt bottoms and seconds and, uh, you know, uh, and of course I have um an audience now because i've got all my military buddies we're riding around in a truck you know a big panel van uh riding around in this truck uh while the airplanes are in the air when you work on airplanes if they're in the air you can't work on them so you wind up riding around in a truck waiting on the 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 jets to come back in and land so that you can start doing your maintenance on them uh and so the cool thing was is that i'm doing card tricks In the shop, I'm doing card tricks in the back of the truck. I'm doing card tricks out on the flight line while we're waiting on jets to come down. You know, I had so many opportunities to show literally hundreds of people card tricks. Um, And uh, it was a lot of fun. I got a lot of informal performance time in. Granted, Mm -hmm. just performing for friends and buddies and stuff like that. But I got a lot of informal performance time in 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 those years. Because, you know, everybody wants to see a cool card trick. Yeah, Um, So... That's kind of how it you know got started. I know that's a long answer to that question, but those four years between nine or five years between 91 and somewhere in 9596, that time period was when I just made massive amounts of progress uh, because that's all I did for, mm-hmm. for those years. I'm always
0: interested in like the the really early influences. And how that sort of shapes your trajectory. So, like, when you mentioned the Bill Tar books and all of the, like, secret manipulation apparatus, and then talking about stripper decks and Svengali decks, you know, it's all, all those little, uh, you
1: know, yeah. ingredients are there for you. Well, there is, <laughs> you know, there is a, there's a, a quality that magic has that I don't really have a name for, um, But it kind of boils down to a cool factor. You know, there's just, there's things you look at it and it it just speaks to some part of our brains that goes, that's just cool. You know, and and we looked at a lot of things on my puzzle shelf here. They don't do anything but what they do. You know, it's a, it's a magnet falling through a copper tube. It doesn't do anything but that. There's no way for you to apply this information in your life. You don't leave here a better person for knowing about it. And yet you can't help but play with this object yeah. and go man that's cool so I there's want one. Yeah. there's something yeah I want one of these yeah. you know here's a deck of cards in a bottle it doesn't do anything but sit on the shelf but I got to have one there's there's something about it that speaks to us on this james bond gadget level uh, like a lot of magic props are actually quite elaborate mm-hmm. and that speaks to us on this james bond gab- gadget level where we go, man, that's cool. And then there's other things that are very simple, but they all have this, this cool factor. Whatever the cool factor is, you know. Um, and, uh, and so that spoke to me. And I think it speaks to a lot of people that are interested in magic. And, the, you know, by far the sexiest stuff about gambling and cheating are the cool toys, you know, and I'm sometimes reminded of that Jack Nicholson line from the Batman, the Tim Burton Batman movie. Where, do Where does he get these wonderful, these wonderful toys? toys? Yeah. Um, and and so the cool part is, as a magician, we get the wonderful toys, you yeah. know, that other people don't, literally don't get to know about because we shield the secrets from them or we shield them from the secrets, if you, uh, uh, if you prefer. Uh, and so something about cool toys speaks to me spoke to me as a magician speaks to me as a, as a gambling cheating you know researcher and, uh, and practitioner speaks to me as a puzzle collector and a gadget collector. Um, was James Bond a big influence in your life? No I like the movies but yeah. not, not a big influence um, but I do like the movies and, and my favorite part of the movies the gadgets yeah you know we all looked forward to um, to <clears throat> bond walking down into the basement. And Q coming up, and to me, <coughs> excuse me, to me, Q will always be uh, Desmond Llewellyn, mm-hmm. <coughs> and him saying, pay attention, 007, and you know, now going into the little spiel about what all of these things do, and every single one of us sitting in those theaters going, man, I wish I had a watch that had a laser beam in it, or a dart, or... I could whistle a tune and something on the other side of the room explodes, you know. Yeah. So you're looking at all that stuff going, man, I'd love to have that. And in magic and gambling, you can have it, you know, if you can track it down and buy it. Um, so that stuff was just cool. And there's something about magic and puzzles and gambling that just speaks to that. Whatever part of our brain appreciates the cool factor, I got it, you know, and I got it in a lot of areas of my life. I like lock picking. Yeah because it's cool because it's arcane information it's it's not something everybody knows about but it's not that hard you know if you want to learn to pick the deadbolt on your front door it will take you you know take you a couple of days to understand what's really going on in there and probably take you uh you know five or ten minutes the first time you try it and eventually you get it down to 30 seconds or two seconds depending on how good the lock is on your front door same thing with most cheap hardware store padlocks i could teach you to pick one and you know, in half an hour. And mm-hmm. some of them are easier than others. Some of them will take you 30 seconds. Some of them will take you three or four minutes. But you'll pick them all in just a couple of weeks' practice. You can be a really good, you know, walk-around-town lock picker. Now, there are some locks that are unbelievably difficult to pick and that take specialized tools and all that. But for the most part, if you want to be a lock pick guy that, you know, can pick open every lock in your house and all of your padlocks, take you a month you know to get that good so i like stuff like that i like those kind of uh any sort of subculture information that not a lot of people know about mm-hmm. uh, things like that are very interesting to me i'm interested in computer hacking and computer security for the same reason although by far this is the subject that i know the least about mm-hmm. just because it's relatively new and i didn't grow up with it you know sure i, I never took a computer class in high school because there was no such thing um but uh, so I like any sort of sort of any sort of subculture information, any sort of arcane information that you've got to really dig to find. That stuff intrigues me. So,
0: yeah, I agree. I think I, I all kinds of subculture, and I, my my subculture stuff lies outside of magic. Like I'm really into coffee and hmm. craft beer. And oh yeah whiskey and weird stuff like that. But it's, it's funny, you named
1: three things that I know nothing about. I've really? never, never had a cup of coffee in my life. Uh, I've never finished a glass of whiskey. I've never finished a glass of beer. Really? Um, and for years, I couldn't tell you why. I didn't know why. I don't like tea, don't like coffee, don't like beer, don't like wine, don't like alcohol at all. Yeah. For years and years and years, when people ask me this, I go, I don't know. I just don't like it. And I think I kind of figured it out as I got older. Um, because one day it dawned on me that I have... A out of control, an out of control sweet tooth.
2: Uh-huh.
1: I mean like cookies and brownies and cakes and pies and like hard candy, you know, or fruity candy from the gas station, Skittles and Starburst and all that shit that none of us are supposed to be eating. I love it. Yeah. I've loved it since I was a kid. I just have a crazy out of control sweet tooth. Yeah. Um, but what that means is I don't like anything bitter. And think about coffee. It's bitter. In its pure form, it's bitter. You know, nobody wants to, uh, most people don't like super strong black coffee. What they want is coffee with cream and sugar and milk and all that. So So you want candy coffee. Yeah, you can make coffee that's not bitter, but coffee is bitter by itself. Same thing with beer. You know, beer has a bitter element to it. Um, Wine can be very sweet and fruity if you can get past the tannins. But tannins are bitter. There's Mm -hmm. no question about it. Uh, same thing with whiskeys. You know, there's bitter things in it. And I just don't like anything bitter. It, it, uh, I either, maybe I have very sensitive taste buds to bitter. I don't know. I don't, I don't really understand the physiology behind all of that. I just know that I don't like anything bitter. I love sweet things. So I like fruit, but not vegetables. Uh-huh. I have to force myself to eat vegetables, and I do. You know, I actually have grown to like some vegetables as I've gotten older. So I wouldn't have touched a broccoli stalk with a 10-foot pole when I was a kid, but I'll eat it now because I actually like it now. So I've taught myself to like green vegetables, but I always liked fruit. I like bananas and oranges and apples. Well, They're all sweet. You know, none of those. I'm not describing any bitter fruit. I really like pineapple because there's nothing bitter about it. It's pure sugar and water. That's all it is, you know. Um, and so I think that's why I don't like any of those other things is they all have an element of bitter to it. And, um, you know, I just can't, I can't deal with bitter, but, uh, that's really, don't like dark chocolate, but love milk chocolate. You know, there it's all of these examples. They all have the same thread running through them. Yeah. don't like the bitter stuff. I love the sweet stuff. Huh? So I think that has a lot to do with it. I would actually be better off if I liked bitter, you know, it, Coffee is better for you than a Coke. Yeah. But I love Coca Cola. Um. I don't like coffee. You know, uh, having a glass of wine is better than you know having a Mountain Dew. But I'll take the Mountain Dew any day over the glass of wine because I just can't deal with uh, with the bitter stuff. Dark chocolate's better for you than sweet chocolate. You know, milk chocolate. I can't do it. Uh, so I kind of wish I could do the bitter stuff, but I can't bring myself to try any of that crap. You guys can keep it.
2: <laughs> but it's funny. It's amazing I mean,
1: to me. <laughs> funny? So here's the funny thing. I walk through, you know, like the liquor section of a, uh, of a grocery store or something. I'm looking at all this wine. I'm looking at all the, you know, all the single malt scotches and stuff like that. And I look at all these craft beers. And do you know what I think about? I think about the subculture I'm missing out on. Mm-hmm. But I still don't like this stuff. But yeah. all I see is avenues of that I could be learning from. Boy, I could really get into wine, if only I liked wine. Because there's this whole world behind the wine door mm-hmm. that I don't know anything about. And there's obviously this whole door behind the microbrewery and craft brewery world that I know nothing about. Uh, and to a lesser degree, I look at cigar smokers the same way. Yeah. Well, I'm like, man, I wish that stuff didn't kill you, because it, and I wish it didn't smell so bad, because it might be cool... To really be in, you know, that into uh, a certain area of your life. Yeah. Now, I hate smoking, so that one would be the the last on my list. But you know, cigar smokers have that subculture, and they get yeah. uh, they got magazines devoted to it. You know, there's no such thing as cigarette aficionado, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh but cigar smokers and pipe smokers have these whole worlds mm-hmm. that are available to them that they're that are not available to me because I can't tolerate the thing. Yeah. You know, but uh but yeah I look at that. I look at the beer subculture and the magazines and the conventions and all that and I'm like, man, kinda be cool to have another world open up to me. But I got to start drinking beer to do it, so no thanks. Don't like beer. Yeah, but uh, and uh, we don't really have Coca-Cola conventions uh, for drinking. Uh, only Coca-Cola conventions for collecting all the Coca-Cola crap. But uh, and there's no candy conventions that I'm aware of. But I'd probably go to one of those.
2: That so, would be cool. Yeah,
1: would that be cool? Candy convention. I'm sure there's probably some candy trade show somewhere. It's got to be something. But you know what I mean. It's just like yeah. yeah. I, I I totally understand the subculture side of those. You know, however many topics we just covered, three or four yeah. things. Um, and I see that whenever I look at the craft beer section in the store or wine or single malt scotches or anything. All I see, coffee's the same way. All I see is the subculture that I'm missing out on. Yeah. I just can't bring myself to drink coffee to get into the subculture You know, of It's coffee. so
0: funny that you say that because that is how I got into those things.
1: Was through coffee.
0: Well, no, it's just I didn't like the thing, but I was like, "That culture is that is so cool. Like, I aspire to be like what I imagine those people are like." Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm sure. gonna buy a bottle of scotch and hate it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and but like, yeah. Well, the last kind of thing I need is. Like
1: four other areas of the world to spend money on. (laughs) So, uh, I'm kind of glad that I'm not into those things. Yeah. um, Because uh, all my money goes to, you know, gambling, expensive hobbies. Yeah, exactly. I've got several expensive hobbies. I don't need another one. Yeah. I don't golf. I don't snow ski. You Mm -hmm. know, scuba diving's an expensive hobby to start. Yeah. It's not expensive to maintain, but it's expensive to start to buy all your gear initially. So, there's a big initial outlay of money there, but, you know, the individual dives, once you got all your crap, is, yeah. they're pretty cheap. cheap. Pretty affordable. Yeah, yeah. especially you if you live near the ocean. Yeah. Know, which I lived on that island for two years, lived in Florida for a couple of years. So, where are some of your favorite dive spots? Well, uh, I've been in the Caribbean a few times. First of all, I'm a warm water diver. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, warm water scuba diving is awesome, and cold water scuba diving sucks. <laughs> uh, and it's the difference between, you know, uh, a warm spring day hiking through. Uh, the mountains, and going up the north face of Everest. You know, it's like one of them is a lot of fun and casual and relaxed and you feel good, and the other is a lot of work. Yeah. And I'm just not interested in cold water diving. Sure. Uh, Would I do it for certain things? Yeah, sure. If you told me we could go to Monterey and I could go out and do, uh, uh, you know, a dive in the kelp beds off the coast of Monterey, well, you're going to freeze your ass off, but of course I would do it uh, because it's it's a -a once-in-a-lifetime thing. But if you say pick uh, a dream dive spot and let's go there i want to go to truck lagoon i want to go to yap places in micronesia mm-hmm. Okinawa was fantastic um florida not so great because i was on the gulf of mexico the gulf, sucks. The gulf of mexico is a, for those of you that don't know it's a big underwater desert there's nothing down there for the most part you know yeah. a couple of shipwrecks here and there but you could literally go down you know 100 feet in the gulf of mexico and sit on the bottom. You can see pretty good. You can see you know, 200 feet in every direction and see nothing but sand dollars. You know, there's no coral out there to speak of, you yeah. know, not compared to the great locations in the Caribbean that have big, you know, coral formations. Gulf of Mexico is just a big underwater desert. But it is where I learned to dive uh, off uh, Tyndall Air Force Base um, in 92. That's when I uh, in 92? 93. I got my dive card in 93. Uh, Okinawa was fantastic Mm. you know that's genuine tropical diving you know 85 degree water temperature so we literally used to go diving in shorts and t-shirts sometimes blue jeans and t-shirts because denim is uh, a really durable fabric so if you bump up against sharp coral uh, blue jeans are cheap you can throw them away if they get scratched up if you need to but uh, you know I've been diving in blue jeans uh, you know 50 times in my life probably T shirt, if you need it. If you don't, don't worry about it. You know, we went, uh, went year round. Uh, and it did get cold enough to need um, uh, medium wetsuits mm-hmm. in Okinawa. But most of the year, shorty wetsuit, you know, uh, was fine. And in the summertime there, man, you, you couldn't put anything on. You'd burn up. So yep. it was shorts and t shirts um, and fantastic. The island, 67 miles long by 17 miles wide. At its widest point so many times on a friday night after work me and my friends would be sitting around and be like let's go diving you know it's midnight you know and we're sitting in our dorm room let's just go diving screw this i don't want to watch the movie let's go diving we go out to the car all the stuff's already in the trunk of the car we've got tanks that were jammed up full of air from the last trip because mm-hmm. we always fill our tanks after a trip not before so that we're ready to go at a moment's notice Get in the car, drive in any direction for 20 minutes, you're going to hit water. You can't help it, you know, uh, as long as you don't go north and south. You go north and south, you have to drive an hour before you hit water. Okay, but you're eventually going to hit water. That's where you dive. Yeah. And many times we found fantastic dive sites doing that. Sometimes we found terrible dive sites doing that where you'd never go back. But for two years, uh, 711 days on island, I did over 500 dives. Wow. Um, and so that's you know works out to about one every day and a half. Um, and just a terrific, terrific learning experience, had a blast. Part of me wishes I didn't live in Las Vegas so that I could go, you know, um, year round. If, in fact, if, if my wife and I ever move from Vegas, we will probably move to where there's water because, yeah. uh, I got back in the water, uh, this time last year in the Caribbean and just fell in love with it all over again. Although I really hadn't been diving in a, in a long time since I lived in California, um, but I just fell in love with warm water diving again. You know, again, 85 degrees, wearing shorts and a T-shirt, you know, falling off the boat, and there you are, crystal clear water. You can see 100 feet in any direction. And that's what I like. Yeah. Um, I tried to dive in California when I was stationed in the military there. If you can see 10 feet, uh, you're doing well, Yeah. and you're freezing your butt off the whole time. And I was like, you know what? I could see 80 feet at night with no lights in Okinawa why would I want to go diving someplace where I can only see 10 feet and freeze to death doing it? So (laughs) screw that. I went like four or five times in California and said, this is awful. This is work. And I hate it. And I'd much rather, I'm a lazy, warm water drift around and look at stuff. uh, Scuba diver. I don't like to hunt. Uh, I would, I would take lobster uh, if I, if I ran across them, but I don't, I don't hunt fish underwater. Uh, never speared a fish in my life. Just not interested. I'm a, I'm a looky-loo scuba diver, and that's why I like it. But it was a lot of fun. Do
0: you have any cool dive
1: stories? Yeah, a couple of them. Um, uh, if anyone's listening to this, please don't repeat uh, my actions. But I went cave diving without knowing anything about cave diving. That's an incredibly dangerous and stupid thing to do. But when you're 23 years old, it's kind of hard to convince yourself of that. We uh, we sort of thought we knew it all, so. Uh, I've pushed way back into caves uh, off Okinawa with no protection, which is, again, incredibly dangerous and, in hindsight, preposterously stupid. What's dangerous and stupid about it? You have no direct access to the surface. So if you're going to go cave diving, well, let's say you're normal scuba diving. You're 20 feet, you're looking around, and something goes wrong. You're, uh, you know, suddenly you can't breathe. Well, you're only 20 feet from the surface. Yeah. And uh, depending on how long you've been down, you could probably do a slow, steady ascent from 20 feet, get to the surface, and you'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, if you're 100 feet down, it's a little trickier, but you could still probably do uh, an emergency ascent uh, from 100 feet down. And if you haven't overstayed, you're welcome. In other words, if you haven't stayed too long at those depths you would probably survive the trip. You, know, you do have to worry about the bends yeah. um, you know, surfacing from that depth uh, in an emergency situation, but you're probably going to live if you can just get to the surface if you have trouble scuba diving under normal recreational limits. The problem with cave diving is if you have a problem, you can't go up. You, ha- you may have to go 70 feet horizontally before you can even begin to go up. Um, And so not having direct access to the surface is uh, is what uh, gets a lot of cave divers and wreck divers killed. Anytime you penetrate a wreck, you know, shipwreck or submarine wreck or something like that, anytime you penetrate a cave opening, once you take away that direct access to the surface, you better hope like hell nothing goes wrong. Yes. And the way to cave dive safely is to have lots of redundancies. So if regulator A goes bad... I switched to regulator B. Yeah. Now I'm still gonna to try to leave the cave and get to the surface, but I don't have to rush to do it and I'm not, you know, in critical danger because I've got these redundant systems. We didn't have redundant systems. We were recreational sport divers. We had one tank, we had one main, you know, regulator on the back of the tanks called the first stage. We might have had two second stages, two things you put in your mouth one for me and one for a buddy if he needs it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fine if your second stage goes bad. What if your first stage goes bad? You've only got one of those and you've only got one tank. Um, so if any of those things went wrong, we did not have redundant backup systems, except for the guy next to you. you yeah. know, Maybe you'd survive off of his system long enough to get out of the cave and, and up to the surface, if you're lucky. Uh, but then the worst part about cave diving, without question, is navigation. That way too many cave divers, most of them in Florida, but way too many cave divers have died because they couldn't find their way out of a cave. You get in and you get turned around and you think that's the exit and all that does is it takes you farther into the cave and then you make another wrong turn and we may never find you again. And there are literally bodies dressed out in scuba gear, you know, scattered throughout Florida caves to this very day, people we've never found before. Um, And so it's scary, it's dangerous. And the way you get in and out uh, your navigation usually involves reels, you know like a fishing line, not fishing line, but a line like a fishing line it's a it's a cord that you hook to something outside the cave. And you swim into the cave with this reel, so you're leaving a trail behind you. It's like breadcrumbs. It, absolutely, except they don't float away, yeah. hopefully. <laughs> so you hook to something, you go in the cave, you look around, now it's time to leave. We just, we literally, you you wind yourself out of the cave. You mm-hmm. literally take this thing like a fishing reel, and you spin it with your hand, and you swim out of the cave as you take up the slack. Um, so you that's how, you know, and if, again, if you're listening to this, if you're some kid... Going scuba diving in Florida, you need to take cave diving classes. Don't think that I've described all of it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there there are ways you get in, there are ways you get out, there are ways you navigate. There's things you have to understand about cave diving, like if you touch the bottom, you're never going to see anything again uh, because all that silt that's been sitting there in this basically motionless water in these inside of these caves, all the particulate falls out and it rests on the bottom. And if you touch the bottom, poof big cloud of silt and smoke it may take two hours for that stuff to settle down again well guess what you don't have two hours you know you might have 20 minutes 30 minutes something like that but you don't have two hours so now you got to find your way out without being able to see that's where these lines come in very handy so not touching the bottom using reels to get in and out uh, having triply redundant systems you know i got three air tanks uh i've got three flashlights because I've had situations where two two lights went bad on one dive, you know. So you go in crazy redundant. You go in uh, with lines and reels that get you back out. Uh, you know, you really understand emergency procedures and all that. That's what keeps you alive, uh, cave diving. And we did none of it <laughs> in Okinawa when I was stupid and in my twenties. Um, so uh, those are some of the stories. Um, but I got to do some fun stuff. I got to help build an artificial reef by sinking my car in the ocean, Uh, the car in Okinawa that we bought. um, I tell this story, and it sounds like I drove my car into the ocean, which would be a crazy, ridiculous, irresponsible thing to do. Uh, But... We did push my car into the ocean and then floated it out and then sank it. But, you know, you gotta you got to drain all the oil out and yeah. the gas, all the fluids and all that. and You take things out that would get people in trouble. You, you take all the glass, you take the doors off, actually. You don't want someone to get in, close the door, and then not be able to get out again. You literally take the doors off and the seats out and all that stuff. But, you know, we pushed my car into the ocean, floated it out there, and sank it as part of a program to build an artificial reef off the coast of Okinawa. So that stuff was kind of cool. Um that was about it. You used to play with octopus and lobster, You'd know, catch the lobster, play with octopus and uh, fish and stuff like that. You'd go night diving. It was great. If you've never been on a, a night scuba dive with a big coral wall, it's fascinating because you take your light and you shine it on the wall, and you're looking at the reef, and the reef looks back at you. I mean, hundreds of little animals little clicker shrimp and fish and you know all of these eyes glow in that light and the reef stares back at you and it's an amazing thing you know so you're looking at you're looking at a living thing this reef and you're looking at hundreds of smaller living things on the reef and that experience is there's nothing else like it in the world and it's just like anything else you know You go uh, take a flashlight into the woods at night, you're going to see a lot more animals than you see in the daytime because they hide from you in the daytime. Same thing happens underwater. You know, you want to see animals go night diving and uh, wash that big spotlight across a wall of living things. And it's staring at you from two feet away. Uh, And it's fascinating. And a lot of them, it's really cool. um, uh, They can't see you. All they see is the light. Well, they see the light from the moon and the sun, you know, so they're not necessarily afraid of that. So they don't—they won't always run from the light. They'll run if they see you, or they'll hide if they see you. Mm-hmm. But So you can get right up on top of animals, I mean, inches away, if you're blinding them with, uh, with a flashlight in the middle of the night, it, underwater, and they won't run from you mm-hmm. until they figure out that you're a scuba diver. You know, yeah. They hear you sometimes, hear your uh, bubble exhaust. So it's a, it's a fascinating world. Most people don't get to see. Um, and as long as you're warm and safe and, you know, you're only 20 feet under the water to begin with, you can stay there for hours. Uh, I mean, I've done two-hour dives before at 10 or 15 feet just looking at um, hundreds and hundreds of meters of coral reef. Uh, I used to see sea snakes all the time, which are preposterously poisonous, mm-hmm. uh, but thankfully very docile. Uh, I mean, I've had many a sea snake swim right past my head and all you do is just kind of move out of the way let them go because they're not going to bother you as long as you don't bother them yep. uh, but i mean i've been on dives where we saw 10 or 12 sea snakes uh at once you know on, on a single die that's a lot um, and you're you're literally swimming around with the equivalent of cobras except that they're so docile and uh they just don't they don't bother you they're not interested in you at all you know, you don't fit a predator profile and you don't fit a prey profile, so they pretty much ignore you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, stuff like that is great. Interacting with uh, any other animal where you don't fit that predator or prey profile, they'll interact with you. You know, dolphins aren't afraid of us because we're not prey or we're not predators and they're not interested in this because we're not prey so that means they'll interact with you they'll play with you um sharks are a little bit trickier because we might fit the prey profile but a lot of sharks we don't fit that profile too so some sharks will interact with you you know nurse sharks and lemon sharks and stuff like that will interact with you the ones that uh you fit that prey profile you got to be a little more careful with but yeah. uh you know so interacting with with that uh, wildlife you know uh, is fascinating when was the last time you let a squirrel or a squirrel let you get up close to it doesn't happen you know unless you've got one at a park trained to take a peanut out of your hand if you try to walk over and put your hand on a squirrel it's not going to happen he's going to run from you a couple weeks
0: ago i was at like a park and there was a squirrel running by and i was like and i like you know moved my fingers like i had something uh for him and he walked you know right up to me sniff my finger and the woman across the park was like (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she looked anyway okay go ahead but, but it's you know
1: that squirrel's been trained to do that but most wild squirrels or you know animals won't do that to you, yeah. you know, try to get a bird to come to you you can train them to do it you can see people on youtube training hummingbirds to drink out of their hands or whatever but it takes a long time to train yeah. them to do that underwater animals don't see humans They don't see us very often. You know, the squirrel in the park sees humans every day and knows to run from them, Mm -hmm. knows to run from dogs. Underwater animals don't see humans very often. So we're not a predator to most of those things, and Mm -hmm. we're not prey to most of those things. So we're just this big thing in their world that they sometimes want to investigate. Octopus will often come out of their holes to see the diver. Because they're like, hello, what are you doing in my world? And then, you know, you've got this big bubbly thing. Sometimes they'll run from you, sometimes they won't. But that interaction, you can't get above the water, mm-hmm. but you can get it below the water. You know, uh, clownfish will attack you. You know, the little dory fish. You put your hand in there, seeing an anime. Uh, the little clownfish that lives in the, in the anemone will come up and try to bite you, and it's hysterical because you know they're the size of a half dollar, yeah. And their you know their mouths are tiny, but they will try to bite you. It's a good thing clownfish don't weigh a thousand pounds because they'd be the most ferocious predators in the sea. You know, uh, lionfish. You know, the big fish with the poisonous spines on the mm-hmm. back on their backs. Uh, you can get right up next to them. Uh, now, if you reach your hand out, they'll probably swim away from you. But you can be a foot away from them. And uh, you don't threaten them, and they don't threaten you. And so they will tolerate that proximity. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating. This is why I tell people you got to go scuba diving because of this really cool interaction with nature. You know, try not to touch anything or damage anything, and certainly don't hurt anything. But you can interact uh, in a proximal sense. You're interacting with nature from just a couple of feet away. And that's what's so great about it. So. This wasn't supposed to be a scuba diving interview, right? <laughs> oh, whatever. I hope I, I just sold it to someone. My dad's a my
0: dad's a scuba diver, so I'm fascinated and I love it. You should try it one of these days. I would love to. I have trouble equalizing the pressure in my ears. I've taken lessons and it just doesn't work. For me. It's hard to do. Yeah. Um, if you've noticed, I've been like clenching and yawning this pretty much the whole day because my
2: just trying to ears equalize the, it. Huh? Yeah.
1: What if it's something that you could actually learn to do if you? if you did it every single day um, you know because scuba divers start off not being able to do it very well and then they get really good at it just it's, it's a skill like anything else it's called a Valsalva maneuver mm-hmm. and I always just did it by holding my nose and blowing and yeah. you know forcing the air through that uh, the estation tube Um, but some divers that have been diving for a long time could do it just by manipulating their jaw. I'm doing it right now. Um, I can't do that. I never learned to do it just by manipulating my jaw. I always had to, you know, hold my nose and blow gently. Um, but, so it may be something that you actually would be better at than you think if you did it every day for a month, you know, you might get to the point where, you know, you gradually taught yourself to be able to equalize, um, but if you have sinus trouble, like that's my, that's my, the reason. My wife yeah. has really bad sinus trouble, um, except around the ocean. When she's, really, when she's around the ocean, that kind of that salt water sort of clears all your sinuses. In fact, one of the things they tell you to do if you have sinus trouble is spray saline solution up your nose and breathe it into your you know try to uh, suck it into your sinus membranes to calm that. And so you may find that scuba diving actually helps. You know, in the long run, would actually sure. help your uh, your ear clearing. Uh, not uh, not heard it. So, all right. Any yeah, what what? Uh, what else we got about magic? <laughs> Keep going um, with this if you want. I'm having a good time.
0: Paul asked me to. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> no, he just Here said he just said that there's you have a good story about putting on a bed for your dad. Huh. Um. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, give me one second. Okay. Um, do you mind if I go run to the restroom? Not at all. That makes perfect sense. <coughs> so.
1: What uh, what else? Uh, oh, the uh, story about my dad. Yeah. Um, so, I do have a funny story about my dad. My dad is a huge Tennessee sports fan. He went to the University of Tennessee. He went to medical school there. He's a physician in Knoxville. And he is... Uh, a big sports fan. So he likes football and basketball and anything Tennessee-related. And occasionally, a situation comes up where he will bet on the outcome of the games. Um, and it's usually not a, not a lot of money, a couple hundred dollars, you know, $500,000 at the most. But That's rare. Usually a couple hundred dollars. Um, and what he does, it's kind of interesting, he actually bets on the other team to win mm-hmm. and here's his rationale he wants tennessee to win and if tennessee wins the game he's happy to lose the money yeah you know but if tennessee loses the game at least he has the consolation prize of winning the bet mm-hmm. okay so quite often you know like uh, this last tennessee just played last week they beat georgia university uh university of georgia with a hail mary pass with this no time remaining on the clock uh, to uh, to win the game. And it was a spectacular football win. And he had actually bet on Georgia uh, to win. And I think he bet a significant amount of money, like 800 bucks, and he's happy to lose that money to ensure that Tennessee beats, you know, one of their big rivals, Georgia. So he's basically he's he's leveraging his wallet against his heart yeah. is what it boils down to. So, I don't know, three or four years ago, um, he uh, – He calls me up and he says, hey, I need you to go put uh, $500 down on this game. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I don't remember who we were playing. uh, He said, bet on the other team, $500. And I said, okay, I will. And then something came up and I could not get to the casino to place the bet. Uh, So I'd never placed the bet. And Tennessee actually won the game. So he would have lost that money. But since I never placed the bet, it's great. Tennessee wins. That's what he that's what he wants in the first place. So, but he doesn't know I didn't place the bet. So I had to call him and say, "Hey, by, by the way, good news, you don't owe me any money because I never was able to place the bet. I couldn't get to the casino in time." And so I call him on the phone to tell him, "Hey, you don't owe me anything. I, I didn't uh, I didn't do it. Couldn't do it." <laughs> and so he call I call him and he answers the phone and he's in the car with his wife, uh, my stepmother. Um, And uh, apparently he didn't want her to know that he was betting on football games. Um, And so I said, hey, uh, I got good news about that bet. Or I said, hey, about that bet. And I was going to say, I didn't place it. So you don't owe me any money. don't have to mail me any money or don't have to send me any money. I said, "Hey, about that bet," and he goes, "Oh yeah, we'll uh, well, we'll talk about that later. Uh, I don't, I can't really talk about that right now. I don't have time. Uh, we'll talk about that later." And this is, uh, you know, out of uh, uh, this is sort of out of character for my dad to say something like that. So I knew that uh, Janie, his his wife, must have been in the car with him. He didn't want her to know that he had lost this money on a on a bet. And so I said, "Okay," and I hung up the phone. That was it. That was the end of it. I yeah. didn't tell him. Uh, we'll talk about it later. Well, later never came. We just, you know, a week or so went by and I never called him back and he never called me back. And my brother, Zach, went home on vacation and uh, stayed for, you know, four or five days. And when he when Zach was coming back to Vegas, uh, my dad took him to the airport and he hands him five hundred dollars and said, here, give this to Jason. Uh, So my dad thinks he's paying off this bet that he lost. He doesn't know that it was never placed in the first place. Uh, so Zach knew that I hadn't placed the bet, but he takes the money anyway. I said, <laughs> okay, I'll give it to him. So he takes the money and he comes home and he says, hey, I got something funny here. Um, Dad gave me $500. He thinks he owes you this for that bet that you never was able to place. And now this is like two weeks has gone by or something. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I never I never did tell him that I never placed the bet. So Zach's like, what do we do? And uh, I said, I've got just the thing. I know exactly what we're going to do. So we went to... Uh, Caesar's Palace, Mm -hmm. here in town, and upstairs at Caesar's Palace uh, in the Forum Shops, there, there is a Tommy Bahama, uh, you know, just a men and women's clothing, you know, island clothes, Hawaiian print shirts, that sort of thing. Yeah. So we uh, we go into Tommy Bahama, and Zach and I each picked out one of their, you know, like hundred and five or hundred and ten dollar silk Hawaiian print shirts. (laughs) We bought one of those each, and uh, we got business cards from Tommy Bahama. And uh, then we go downstairs to Joe's Stone Crab. Now, this is not Joe's Crab Shack, which is a chain they have all over the place. This is Joe's Stone Crab, a really nice high-end restaurant here in Las Vegas that sells fantastic steak, uh, they're known as a steak and uh, crab restaurant. There's only three of them in the world. One in mm-hmm. Miami, one in Chicago, and one here in Vegas. So really nice restaurant. You know, maitre d's and tuxedos and all that stuff. I think I've been there, actually. Yeah, it's downstairs at Caesars. So we go okay, to Caesars, yeah. and we spent, you know, something like $250 or something like that on dinner. Yes. Um, and we tipped our server. You know, we gave him a, a really nice tip. And the money we had left... Well, it, it amounted to like thirty-four dollars and fifty-two cents, something like that, of the five hundred bucks. So we went and we we got like business cards, and we took photos of all the food that we're eating. <laughs> we took photos of us in our shirts. We took photos of the maitre d holding his fifty-dollar tip. You know, we take all these pictures, and um, we printed all the photos out. And we went and we took the receipts, and we framed it all. And we had this big. Poster board made with like four or five pictures and the receipts that we spent and we actually put his change in there. thirty four dollars and fifty two cents. Put the change in there, framed it, glued it down, and all that. And then I made a I made two things. I made a little plaque that looked like a to do list. In fact, it said to do on it. Yeah. It said to do wash the car. And there was a little check mark <laughs> checked off. Um, feed the dogs. Little check mark. Cut the grass. Little check mark place bet for dad. No check mark. Uh, so that we put in there. And then uh, at the top, it said, um, there was a, a little uh, placard that we made that said, um, uh, silk shirt, silk shirts at Tommy Bahama, you know, uh, $110. Dinner at Caesars Palace, you know, $280 or whatever it cost. Yeah. Uh, failing to mention that uh, we never placed that last bet. Priceless. Yeah. Uh, so, stole a little thing from uh, uh, MasterCard or Visa. Mm-hmm. So we put all this together. We frame it. And we mailed it to my dad's uh, business partner, his another physician that has worked with him for years. A guy named Dr. Buchanan, Kevin Buchanan. So, we mail it to Dr. Buchanan. Dr. Buchanan sneaks it into the office one morning about 6 a.m. before my dad got in and actually hung it on the wall. Uh, in the office, um, and so my dad's like comes in seven o'clock in the morning. He walks past it, and he looks at this new thing hanging on the wall, and he's like, "What is this?" Because it's you know it's got twenty dollar bills inside it, framed and coins glued in it. And he looks at it, and he realizes he's been had. You know, uh, but of course, this is months have gone by. It's, it wasn't we didn't do it very quickly. It's like the bet was in November, and this was like January that we finally mailed this thing to him. So he looks at this, and he realizes he's been had. And um, and so uh, it is now his favorite piece of art there at the <laughs> office. My dad's an art collector, so it's his favorite piece of art at the office because of this kind of funny story mm-hmm. uh, behind it. And um, so anyway, that's the story that he's talking about. Uh, just me playing a little joke on my dad. And, that's amazing at his expense. Uh, you know, should have uh, uh, he should have uh, should have taken my phone call. <laughs> I
0: point. thought you were going to say when you made the to-do list the last one was going to be call Jason back
1: oh yeah oh. <laughs> um, so it's funny I tell him all the time I say uh, our, our server's name Joe Stonecrab his name is JJ um, and I tell my dad I said look I don't know what you're complaining about had I placed the bet you would have lost yeah and I didn't place the bet I spent all the money on this other stuff instead you're out 500 bucks either way yeah but this way, I'm happy. Zach's happy. JJ's, JJ's happy. <laughs> Everyone's happy, but you. But you would have been unhappy either way. So I don't see what you're complaining about. And sometimes I'll tease in my dad. I'll say, "Yeah, you know, you need to uh, you need to work on that little gambling problem of yours." And he'll say, "Well, the only problem I have is I can't trust my bookie." <laughs> so uh, he actually has, he has great sense of humor about it and. Um, uh, and so now that's one of his favorite little uh, pieces in his art collection is the is the thing. And of course he gets to tell the story every time someone's in the office. And they look at him like, "What the hell is this?" Yeah, he gets to tell the whole story, so he gets a kick out of that. What
0: kind of art does he collect?
1: Just uh, paintings like personal curiosity. Just, just paintings. He's uh, he's a uh, you know been collecting paintings his whole life. So uh, I know some of the artists that he collects, but not many of them. You mm. know, so but uh, but yeah, he just likes paintings. If you go into his house, he's got. You know eighty paintings hanging on the walls of his wow. house a lot of them are local artists from uh, Tennessee area that you've probably never heard of, but mm-hmm. he's got a couple of he got a couple of things that people that are into paintings would have you know would have understood and heard of. that's cool so, uh, but yeah, that's the kind of stuff
0: Paul also asked me to or he didn't ask me he mentioned that uh you would deny working at area fifty one
1: I would deny working at area fifty one
0: Hypothetically, of course. Yeah.
1: Now, you know it's not far from here. It's like four or five miles up the road. I did not done like that. that yeah. uh, i never been to Area 51. I never worked at Area 51. But I used to have a little bit of an, In the Air Force, we used to have to deal with them sometimes. Uh, we have radio call signs in the military, and the call sign for Area 51 is Groom Lake. Uh, or Groom. Uh, no, it's Lake. Groom Lake is the dry lake bed, lake bed that Area 51 sits on. Mm. And I think their, their radio call sign, I think, was Lake back when I was uh, in the military working with aircraft that would have to fly over there or whatever. So, uh, nope, never been there. I tell you, I got my theory on Area 51. What is it? I think Area 51 is the nut magnet. There's nothing up there. It's a yeah. big empty warehouse. But as long as we put guards outside it, And as long as we don't let anyone get anywhere near it, that's where all the crazies congregate, thinking that that's where the aliens are. And they leave
0: the mountains of Colorado alone.
1: Exactly. (laughs) The aliens are at Wright Labs at Eglin Air Force Base in in Florida. That's where we keep those. No. Uh, But no, it's always – it's just – I found it kind of funny that even if there was something cool at Groom Lake at some time – the military would have moved it 50 years ago, but left all the infrastructure and the secure facility up there, just so that all the crazy nut magnets, UFO conspiracy nuts, can go up there and look through the fence, and they're convinced that they found something when really it's going on, you know, at uh, JPL in Pasadena, or you know, at Wright Labs and uh, at Eglin Air Force Base. It's going on someplace that no one's hip to yet. So yeah. that's just my fun little. Uh, My fun little theory. I don't think there's anything to it. All right. Well, I feel pretty good about this. You feel good? Yeah, I think so. Um, Thanks so much for the stories and the history. Um, No problem. What else did Paul say? I see you've got notes over there.
0: I do. A lot of this. Well, I... Oh, there are a couple other things I wanted to ask, actually, that I forgot about. Um, Oh, I also want to hear the story of that mug.
1: Ah, the coffee mug. Yeah. So... um, do you know who Kevin Mitnick is, by any chance? Do you know that
0: name? The name's familiar, but I, I don't know. Okay.
1: So Kevin Mitnick is a is a very famous hacker. That's how I know that. He I mean. was the guy that was arrested in the, I don't remember if it was late 80s or early 90s, uh, arrested for hacking. They accused him of being able to launch nuclear missiles by whistling a specific tone into a payphone. All sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, the FBI spent a lot of money tracking Kevin da- Kevin down, arresting him. He spent some time in federal prison for you know his nefarious hacking activities. And these days, Kevin is a uh, corporate consultant and mil- uh, government consultant. You know, mm-hmm. teaching people how to avoid being hacked and how to uh, keep their system secure. So Kevin has this great business card, which I don't think was his idea. I think it's. Um, uh, something he saw somewhere, but he really liked it. And what it is is his business card is a set of lock picks, mm-hmm. and it's stamped steel. And you can reach into the business card, and you can flex these lock picks out of the business card and bend them into the proper shapes and all that. And it's a neat business card. You can find it online if you did a Google search for lock pick business card. These days, lots of companies sell them. But mm-hmm. Kevin, you know, ten years ago or so, he was one of the first guys to sort of popularize this. Um, so I had I met Kevin a um, couple of years ago, and he gave me a handful of his business cards. And um, so that's the backstory that you need to know. That mm-hmm. Kevin Mitnick has a Lockpick business card, and I had one. So, gosh, three or four uh, history conferences ago. The Los Angeles uh, Conference on Magic History is held every two years. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, In recent years, it's been in the odd year, so the next one will be in 2017. Uh, So this might have been, not 15, not 13, it's either 2009 or 2011, I don't remember which. Sure. Um, I'm at the history conference, and they had uh, a bunch of Johnny Carson's props, um, in the uh, in a glass display case there at the conference mm-hmm. that I guess um, uh, Carson's nephew a guy named Jeff had uh, uh, had loaned to the history conference he had loaned it to Mike Cavney there was one of Carson's mugs in there uh, there was like Johnny's wand and some coins and some cards mm-hmm. and maybe a few mm-hmm. other magic props mm-hmm. but the mug was. To me, the coolest thing in there because oh, yeah. this is like that's the, that's the mug that sat on Johnny's desk all those years. And he had a couple of them over yeah. the years, but that's the one. And so uh, I'm like, man, that's awesome, um, especially considering how I got into magic, you know, from watching a magician on the Carson show.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I'm at the conference and we, we do the whole thing. And at the very end of the conference, like people are leaving, packing up, you know, the dealers are packing their stuff up. Derek Delgado comes up to me and he says hey do you have your lock picks with you by any chance I said no why he said well Mike Caveney uh, has misplaced the keys to the glass display case um, he thinks they might be at the house or something like that but he needs to give Jeff all of the Carson memorabilia back and we were wondering if you could maybe pick the lock on the display case so that we can give the stuff back and I go no sorry man I I don't normally travel with lockpicks, so no, I don't have them. I can't help you. And then right as I'm saying this, I realized I think I might have a Kevin Mitnick business card in my car. Mm -hmm. So I walk out to the car, and I dig around in the center console of my car, and sure enough, there's an unused Kevin Mitnick business card. And I'm like, I've never actually tried this, but let's see if I can make it work with this. So I take out the tension tool and I bend it into the proper shape and I pop the little rakes and picks out and I tell Derek this might work. So it's me and Delgado uh, in this uh, um, in this room, all by ourselves with this glass display case that they you know the doors are closed. We got the key to the door, so we lock the door. We're in there by myself. And it probably took me 30 or 45 seconds to pick open this glass display case lock because, you know, there's nothing to those locks. took me 30 40 seconds to pick it open. Now we got the door open and we're standing there with Johnny Carson's props. Yeah. And I'm like, well, this is too good an opportunity to pass up. (laughs) So I poured some water into Johnny's mug yeah. and I took a sip out of it. Yeah. It was like taking a sip out of the Holy Grail from, you know, Indiana, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I take a sip out of the Holy Grail. I hand it to Delgado, He takes a sip out of it. Somehow Eric Mead uh, <laughs> had wandered into the room or we had gone to get him or something like that. He took a sip out of it and we all took pictures of ourselves. Drinking water from Johnny's mug, yeah, and uh, I thought Johnny would have uh, would have been okay with that. So then we very carefully dried it off, put it back in the case, and you know gave all the stuff to Cavey and boxed it up. And uh, so we uh, we found out about or uh, we we told Mike about this, and he was fine with it. He got a kick out of it and thought it was pretty funny. Um, and so I thought later that I would play a joke on uh, Delgadio. So, that mug that you see on my shelf is uh, a reproduction mug sold you know, back in the gift shop, back in the days when the show was actually on NBC.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so you can still find them online. Go on eBay and get one for, you know, $10 or whatever. Um, so it, it actually isn't exactly the same as Johnny's mug. Johnny's mug had his name on it. That one has a picture of Johnny on it instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I bought it. And it actually looks pretty good. The colors are all right. That's what matters. Yeah. And so it looks like a Carson's actual mug. Um, and so I, I bought it. And um, Delgadio was coming out here to uh, uh, to Vegas, I think, for Thanksgiving or something like that, a few weeks after the history conference. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him on the phone. I go, hey, have you talked to Cavaney?" And he goes, no, what, why? I said, you remember the Carson stuff? He goes, yeah. I said, well, they can't find Johnny's mug. Derek's like, really? What happened? He goes, I don't know. You'll have to talk to Mike, get the details, but they cannot find Johnny's carson's mug after we unlocked the case and you know put everything in the box it vanished somewhere and so uh so derek you know he has no reason to think i'm lying to him so he believed me that someone walked off with this mug and so then i took a photo of my shelf and sent it to derek under some other pretense i don't remember something like hey what do you think of this book and it's a book like lying on the table, but in the background you can see this mug yeah. sitting on the shelf. And I was hoping he would sort of take the bait and go for it. Uh, as it turns out, Derek's too smart for that. He didn't buy a word of it. <laughs> uh, but I think maybe, you know, maybe for half a second I had him yeah. where he's thinking, Holy shit, Jason stole that mug. <laughs> but that was the reason. That's the only reason I have that coffee mug. It's just because I was trying to I was trying to uh, to parlay our little adventure. With the uh, with the lock picks into a practical joke, uh, and so that's why it sits up there. It's uh, a fun little reminder. Of yeah, that. a fun little reminder of the time I used <laughs> the most famous hacker in the world's business card to hack or to uh, to pick open the lock on a display case holding Johnny Carson's mug and drink out of it. You know, that's so, a pretty epic. That's story. That's a pretty cool story. That mug actually is now in. Mike Caveney's collection in Pasadena. So uh, Jeff wound up giving him that mug. And so now I could drink out of it anytime I wanted, probably. (laughs) But uh, so it's a cool story. We all kind of get a kick out of it. And uh, I hope Johnny would have approved. What else you got
0: over there? Um, A couple of things. I wanted to ask. I see you've got two gold
1: bricks over there. How long have you known, Derek? I have three gold bricks. You just don't see the other one. The other one's hiding over there in the corner.
0: Uh, I see it now.
1: Uh, Yeah, so um, I met Derek in 1997. He was 13 years old. Um, I... Pretty sure I showed him his first card trick, his first good card trick. Uh, he, he was into magic before he met me, but uh, not into magic very long before he met me. He met Ed Andres, uh, who worked at Zizo's Magic Shop in Colorado Springs. He met Mark Modir, who is still to this day the owner of Zizo's Magic Shop in the Springs. And he met Mike Pichado. So he kind of met he met those three guys before he met me. But I met him when he was 13. I remember showing him a card trick. Um uh, kind of a version of mcdonald's aces but that used his deck i snuck in some gaffed cards and then snuck them out again of his deck and it sort of rocked his world and you know he was off to the races and that he's never looked back since then but i went to his 14th birthday party there were four of us there it was me mark Modir, jessica now jessica Modir, mark's uh girlfriend at the time now wife and Derek. and the four of us went to old chicago's in denver colorado when Derek turned 14 um, and talked magic and did magic. And I, you know, I got him, I I like to think that I got him hooked on the Steve Forty uh, gambling protection series and the Richard Turner stuff. And, you know, just all the hardcore card magic that I was into. Um, I think I had a big influence on him as far as technique goes. He has since gone on to become, you know, uh, 10 times the magician and performer that I'll ever be. Um, but I get to take credit for the raw technique that he's capable of uh, to the to this day uh, get credit at least for putting him on the path obviously you know nobody can bottom deal for you he did all the work himself but I get to uh, I take great pleasure in the fact that um, you know I uh, I showed him some of this stuff in the early days and boy he took it and ran with it
2: um,
1: so I've known him since 97 coming up on 20 years I have three gold bricks uh, one of them was uh, it's a gold brick that has a, a nameplate on it that was given out to friends and family mm-hmm. after this last run of in and of itself. Uh, another gold brick was just one of the ones that wound up on the street corners. And then I have uh, the gold brick that was actually the, the stage uh, brick. Um, so uh, that's, uh, that's what those three are for. And I keep them separate so that I know which is which uh so one of them is the brick that knows how the trick works <laughs> and one of them is uh a trophy brick and one of them was uh was a street corner brick so kind of cool that i got, cool. actually got a lot of derek Delgado uh memorabilia from his first show with helder um nothing to hide see the playbill yeah, i thing? got playbills i've got one of the cigar boxes uh that was used in that trick i've got the hammer that broke the bottle uh in that trick i've got one of the bottles um and I've got, you know, just a couple of props that they used. Um, and I've got some stuff from uh, from In and Of Itself, you know, ticket stubs and little I don't know if you saw In and of Itself. Did you I see did, the show? Yeah. Okay, so you know you pick a you pick a word at the beginning of the show. So I picked I am a mechanic. Uh, and so uh, First one gets torn up when you actually go see the show, but I went to subsequent shows and managed to uh, manage to grab a spare. I am a mechanic, mm-hmm. uh, sorry. so I've got some of those things over there. Just uh, anything Derek touches these days it turns to gold, and so I want I want one of everything that you know. So I've got copies of the New Yorker, and I've got. Copies of the L.A. Weekly when those guys were on the cover, just you know anything he touches um, turns to gold, and he's my uh, my dearest friend in magic. So I got to have one of everything, and I put it on a shelf, and um, and just uh, I get a lot of uh, uh, take a lot of pleasure and pride in how fantastic of a writer and a performer and an artist uh, that he has become. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, I'm responsible for. You know, one tenth of one percent of it. But I've got my one tenth of one percent of it. I showed him all the cool card tricks in the early days, and uh, but boy, as he turned the tables on me! Talk about you know the student becoming the master. These days, I learn a lot more from him than he than he would ever learn from me. So, it's uh, it, there's been a cool reversal of fortune there uh, on my behalf. That's really so, cool. Yeah. Um,
0: I want to ask quickly about you know gambling demonstrations versus Mm -hmm. magic okay you said you listened to a little bit of jason's and we talked about that pretty early on um what do you think about that whole
1: argument it depends on who my audience is yeah so um if we're talking about lay audiences you Mm -hmm. know typical magician audiences Uh, or audiences in front of magicians not not magicians in the audience but typical non-magician audiences for entertainment purposes there to me is almost no difference between presenting classical card magic and presenting gambling demos Uh, i think those gambling demonstrations and exposés they should be structured like magic tricks they should have surprise left turn endings that come out of nowhere Um, You know, it should be four aces and royal flushes and new deck order and all that stuff. Uh, I'm a big believer in it. It, I've done it for years. It works incredibly strong. But at the end of the day, it's it's dressed up card tricks is Mm -hmm. all it is. And I don't mean that in a diminishing uh, sort of way or a demeaning sort of way, but when I say it's all it is, I mean structurally that's what it is. These are card tricks. They're just card tricks that end with a royal flush. Instead of me finding your signed selected card, Uh, I'm finding four aces or I'm finding royal flushes or whatever. Um, If you go to, uh, if you move a little bit more in in a particular direction, more of an educational direction, like for instance, I have corporate clients that often will hire me to come in and explain some facet of gambling to them. Uh, It happened two weeks ago. Uh, three weeks ago now, I guess, Uh, uh, September 11th, I flew to New York City. And on September 12th, I did a corporate gambling demonstration where they had a blackjack table and they hired a blackjack dealer from the local area that uh, was a dealer in Atlantic City. Uh, They had a poker table and a poker dealer. And all day long, this was a group of uh, data analysts uh, they had been listening to talks on how to analyze data to, um, you know, to improve your business or whatever. And then they had one of the uh, MIT Blackjack team members come in, uh, Jeff Ma, I believe, was the guy they hired. There's a couple of different guys, but uh, I think Jeff Ma is the guy they hired. And I didn't see Jeff. I've met him before, but he came and gave a talk early in the afternoon. And then I was at sort of their uh, their hospitality suite reception area uh, that evening. So they come in and they spent all day talking about um, you know information analysis and learning about counting cards and how the card counters on the MIT team you know won you know a million uh, million bajillion dollars worth of money over the years that they were active. Um, and so then they come see me that night and there's a blackjack table for them to play blackjack for play money. Mm-hmm. So here, my job is to show them, uh, cheating methods, uh, at blackjack. And so I have to be a little more, uh, I have to, I have to be a little more educational and not so much, um, entertainment based, Yeah, but it's still entertainment based, of course, you know, but yeah. the difference here is, is that, um, I'm showing real cheating methods. Mm-hmm. And of course, I reach for the James Bond cool stuff. I reach for the, I have, you know, gaff shoes, gaff blackjack shoes. I reach for those. I bring those along. I show them. I show them the second deal. And I show them stacks. And I show them, um, you know, moves with the chips, uh, yeah. you know, ways to secretly add money to your bet when you have a good hand, secretly take money from your bet when you have a bad hand. I show them all of these different techniques. But here I'm constricted a little bit because the theme is nothing but blackjack for mm-hmm. me, um, and so I can't do a royal flush demo because that's poker, that's not blackjack, and they really wanted to see the blackjack stuff. Yeah. So it's still entertainment. It's still a lot of fun. We still have laughs, and I'm you know I'm dealing myself blackjacks, and you know I do all sorts of stuff like that. But it's a it's a step closer to the real thing, to a real demo. And so now that brings me to the last group of people that I perform for, which is occasionally I do stuff for real casino security personnel, surveillance personnel. Um, And and sometimes it's uh, floor persons. We we don't really have pit bosses anymore in Vegas, Mm -hmm. but we still have floor people. So it's either floor people, sometimes dealers, but not very often, but quite often surveillance operators, directors, and managers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I will have to do a demonstration for them. And for these guys, information is key and priority and education is a tiny part of it so you know the the tables sort of get turned when you're doing it for fun uh, entertainment is primary and information you know can be mostly bullshit if you want you know because the goal is to just put smiles on people's faces you get into the corporate world and they want they want a mixture of both they want some good info yeah they want some good info but they also want to be entertained at the same time um, but then, once you get to the uh, uh, once you get to the real casino stuff, they don't have time for card tricks. They're not interested. I mean, they might like anybody. They might like to see a card trick, but if you try to do a bunch of card tricks for them, they're going to feel like they wasted their money, and didn't learn anything. Yeah. Uh, and so for them, it's ninety nine percent raw information, and that last one percent, you can try to be an engaging speaker, and you can try to have fun as much as you can. But there's no center deal bullshit, you know, there's no hopping the deck, there's no, you know, shift, you know, you'd never show the classic pass to a casino personnel unless you were showing it in some sort of historical context. Yeah. But instead, you show moves with the uh, with the cut cards. So there are cut card shifts and there are cut card hops, things called leaf hops. Uh, you might show those. You might show how someone would actually stack a hand, but you're not going to do an overhand shuffle because they don't do overhand shuffles in the casino world. So everything has to, uh, to the degree possible, everything has to meet their standards, their formats, um, and their um, you know, their rules for really shuffling, and cutting, and dealing at the card table. As long as you stay within their rules, you can pretty much show them anything you want because lots of stuff are possible within those within that structure. Uh, but you, you get out of that structure at your own risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I'm not going to lay a close-up pad down in a casino environment yeah. because they're going to look at that and say, what the hell is that? And I could spend three minutes trying to explain to them that it's just a surface that helps me shuffle. Or I can learn to shuffle on a real poker table, which is very slippery, very slick. Uh, or I can learn to shuffle you know, uh, on a blackjack table where you're standing up, reaching out over the chip tray. And having to shuffle two feet away from yourself. Mm-hmm. you know Your arms are at full extension when you're shuffling out of our blackjack table. They're not up close. You know It's hard to see. It's a hard stretch to make sometimes for people. And all of that stuff changes everything. Um, uh, if you want a really good exercise that shows you the differences in the worlds, um, anyone out there listening to this that can do a second deal, try to put two decks of cards in your hand and do a second deal. And try to hold them the way a real casino blackjack dealer holds the cards when they're pitching double deck. Um, So you got 104 cards in your hand when you start off, you got one burn card that you set aside, now you start to deal. Well, I got big hands, and holding two decks of cards in my hands is not easy. And it's especially not easy when you've never tried it. You know, so if uh you know, if if you just want one little look at how the worlds are different. Second dealing with one deck is one thing. Second dealing with two decks is something else completely, because you don't have a lot of room in your hand. Um, and so little stuff like that makes all the difference in the world. Um, you know, interacting with the with the uh, discard tray and interacting with the uh, the dealing shoes and interacting with the chip tray being in front of you—all that stuff matters at a blackjack table. Now, are there still a million cool things that you can show a casino? Uh, personnel audience absolutely you can show them peaks and flashes and you can show them second deals and you can show them uh moves with the chips where the dealers are doing things they're not supposed to be doing you can show things that the players are doing you can show some of the old mucks that no longer really work these days because the cameras will catch them Uh, you know you can show a lot of that stuff Um, but uh uh, entertainment has to take a back seat to education in that environment so uh, those are the three audiences that I work for. Far and away, the most fun is to work for laypeople because you can do anything you want. Yeah. You know, there are no rules there. Um, corporate world, a few more rules, but they're still basically laypeople. You still have, you know, it's probably 80% fun, 20% information with those guys. Yeah. But we have taken a big step towards the information side of things. Mm-hmm. And once you get to the casino world, now it's you know 99% information and you're allowed to play around with 1%. Yeah. Um. So, what
0: kind of material do you choose for, like, if you're doing a cruise ship or something?
1: Um, lots of classic close-up magic. Mm-hmm. So you see, sitting here on my desk, uh, you see cups and balls. I have got cups and ball sets on the shelves.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I and never... Sherwood set over there is gorgeous.
1: Yeah, uh, I've got the Sherwood silver cups. Those actually don't belong to me. Really, they are on loan from uh, a friend of mine. Uh, they uh, actually those belong to Chris Kenner. Oh. Um, and he he can have them back when he arm wrestles me for them and wins. <laughs> no, uh, he actually loaned me those a long time ago, and um, I i love them, so uh, I practice with them. I don't perform with them because they're so expensive, I sure, don't, you know, but uh, I do practice with them because I, I love those cups. Um, but I have a, a set of terrific rings, rings and things, copper cups that I use. I've got a set of steel practice cups and travel cups over there that I travel with. So I do classic magic. I do a lot of classic card magic. I still do triumph in almost every show for the lay public because it's – even though technically it's the second trick I ever saw, ever second good trick – I often tell people it was the first trick cuz you know I'm not lying by much it was only a week between the there's only one week between the twins and triumph yeah. so sometimes I, I lie and tell people it was triumph the truth is the real truth is it was the twins but uh, for my lay audiences I often tell people this is the very first card trick I ever learned and in in a in a, in a, in a sense that's 99% true it really is Because I no longer do the Twins. It's not the kind of trick I would do anymore. I have a soft spot in my heart for it. I still love it. And in the right situation, I might do it for someone. Um, But for the most part, I don't do the Twins anymore. Uh, Triumph will probably never go out of my set. I think it's the perfect card trick. I think Johnny Thompson would agree with me. Charlie Miller and Vernon, I think, would have agreed with me. You know, a lot of people agree with me. It's just... You know, when the aliens land and they want to see one card trick to save humanity, it's going to be Triumph. Um, so uh, that's, uh, that's the one I would bet the human race on. Uh, it would fool any, any creature in this universe that's not familiar with it. Uh, it's going to get beat by that trick. It's just perfect. You cannot improve it, I don't think. You can take steps sideways, but you can't really take a step forward with that trick, I don't believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't care if you do the shuffle out of Stars of Magic. I don't care if you do a zero shuffle like I do. I don't care if you do Vernon's actual handling with uh, uh, a strip-out shuffle and a block transfer. None of that really matters. What matters to me in that trick is one shuffle on the table for one selected card, uh, ribbon spread the deck face down with the selection face up. Those are the critical features of that trick. And you deviate from those features at your own risk. Um, there are cool versions for magicians that deviate from those, um, uh, those three conditions. I would never do them for lay people. Um, you know, there's lots of in the hands methods, and there's lots of two shuffle methods, and there's lots of methods where you ribbon spread the deck. Uh, One way and uh, you take one selection out and then you ribbon spread it again. And there's another one face up. You know, all that stuff is fun to play with. I I don't mind seeing those versions. I don't mind experimenting with those versions for me and my friends. I would never do one of those versions for a lay audience Mm -hmm. for, you know, all the money in the world. It's just uh, to me, this is the card trick equivalent of, you know, of any other great work of art. And you don't, I don't want to look at the Mona Lisa painted in bright, vivid, you know, modern colors. Uh, I don't want to hear Beethoven's Ninth played on a kazoo, you know, with an electro beat backing it up. I don't want to hear any of that. None of that improves the original, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. They might be cool curiosities. I might play around with them for, you know, special occasions with other magician friends that would appreciate the variation mm-hmm. but when it comes to showing lay people the classics i'm a pretty classical guy you know i it's uh, it's pretty direct classical card magic uh, i do one or two coin tricks that's about it i love coin magic i like watching it i just don't do it i do one or two coin tricks um and that's that's it but you might see those on the ship um what else uh Rubber band magic, I like a lot. It kind of surprises people. A lot of people don't know that about me. Um, when I lived in Colorado Springs and was working uh, working in the Air Force there, I used to go to the magic shop almost every day after work. Um, and the guys knew me as you know a serious card guy, but they played a little joke on me. Sort of. They thought it was a joke. They bought me uh, Dan Harlan's like three volumes, three VHS tapes on rubber band magic. Uh, And they bought it for me as a joke because they knew that I wasn't into rubber band magic. Uh, But the joke's on them because I learned all those tricks, you know. uh, I actually went home and watched those three videos, and they're fantastic, you know. They're I mean... Dan Harlan knows more about rubber band magic than just about anybody. He's a great teacher. Uh, and those three videos to this day are still, you know, they're fantastic rubber band magic sources. So to this day, I still do probably four or five tricks off the, off that video series. Um, and so I, you know, if we look in my drawers over there, there's, you know, really good uh, rubber bands and all sorts of colors and shapes and sizes. And I love rubber band magic. Um, I like small everyday object magic so i'm a huge fan of weber's lifesavers i'm a huge fan of um, of um impromptu magic like i said with everyday objects so i'm a big mm-hmm. fan of the martin gardner uh encyclopedia, you know, encyclopedia. Um, i'm a big fan of you know just anything that looks like you just grabbed something and did a trick with it yeah um i'm a big fan of that it doesn't always find its way into my formal shows. You're sure. probably not going to see that on a cruise ship, but uh, but you might see that if we're at dinner on the cruise ship, mm-hmm. and the topic comes up and someone says, "Can you do a trick for us?" They may not see a card trick. They may see a rubber band trick, or they may see a trick with you know some of the table items, you know, salt shakers or knives or something like that. Uh, because again, it's not a formal show, so I feel like I can do anything I want. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the three shell game. I'm kind of late to the three-shell game party a little bit. I only got into it maybe 10 or 15 years ago. I fooled around with it since I was a kid. But I really didn't start performing it until uh, maybe 10 years ago or so. And uh, um, Bob Sheets was the guy that got me interested in actually performing the three-shell game. Uh, I used to practice it for myself, you know, doing the steals and the replacements and all that. But I never really did it for people. Uh, I, I knew about it and I studied it because of my interest in gambling, mm-hmm. but I looked at it more of more as a historical curiosity than an actual performance piece and seeing Bob do it and seeing Bob Kohler here in Vegas do it, uh, you know his uh, golden shells video is uh, is terrific. Uh, between those two guys uh, you know and then Chef Anton and uh, Whit Hayden standing up the school for scoundrels, however many years ago they did that it's been a while now 15, 20 15, years 20, ago. Yeah. Um, you know, those guys really brought that stuff to the forefront. And so it had been on my radar as a thing I knew about and knew how it worked, uh, but didn't really perform it until not too long ago, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, something like that. Same thing with fast and loose. Love it. Love it. Love it. I think it's a fascinating thing. I don't perform it that often. Um, but I love it and I like reading about it. And if you're interested in fast and loose, you've got to get Paul Vigil's book, uh, uh, because he has uh, you know some really terrific new throws in there that you know I've never seen anything like him before he has got some great ideas um so I like stuff like that uh what else that's a, you know that's probably about it I uh I've always liked um the uh the miniature linking rings uh I've always I mean you know obviously Shudogawa is the guy that has taken the Yanagita routine and really you know, made it a sort of a worldwide phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love a great linking ring routine. I'll never forget the first time I ever met Shudogawa in Los Angeles. We walked across the street to the Magic Castle Hotel from the castle. I'd known him for 10 minutes, and he said, you want to see a trick? I said, Sure. He pulls out these four rings and proceeded to rock my world with a trick that I thought I knew. Yeah. You know, I'm like, Oh, linking rings. One of them's got a hole in it. Okay. I wonder where this is going to go. And when he does some of those visi- visual links yeah. where you're sitting there it looks like he pushes one ring through the next, yeah. you know, my eye, you know my jaw hit the floor, my eyes bugged out of my head, and I'm like, whoa, 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 hang on a second. I thought I knew how this trick worked. What the hell are you doing? You yeah. know, I had no idea. Uh, and this wasn't that long ago. This was 99, you know, 1999 or so. So we're not talking about that long ago. I was seven years into heavy-duty card magic and close-up magic at this point. Uh, shoot, just blew me away with the uh, with the miniature linking rings, uh, what we now refer to as the ninja rings. Uh, you know, Joshua Masado from Philadelphia has some phenomenally beautiful uh, moves with the linking rings. So here's another guy that's really taken that uh, you know uh, that prop, for lack of a better term, and turned it into something. Uh, fantastically beautiful. Uh, so big fan of uh, of what uh, Josh Masato has done with the rigs. Big fan of what Shoot has done with the you know the original Yanagita routine. Guys like Dan Fleshman have been doing those routines for years. I think mm-hmm. he learned it directly from Yanag- Yanagita in Japan. 30 years ago or whatever, you know, so stuff like that intrigues me. And, you know, most of the guys that know me as a card guy would probably be surprised to see me do the ninja rings. You know, I don't have I don't have work on the ninja rings. Yeah, I'm not like, uh, you know, Mr. Masato, who has made his, you know, his life's work in recent years. I don't I don't have work on it. I just do it pretty much right off the DVD. But I love it because I remember that feeling of being blown away by a trick I thought I understood. Yeah. And I'm hoping I give that to some of my audience members that think they understand the linking rings also because they had a set when they were a kid yeah. or their kids had a set, you know, two years ago or whatever. I'm hoping I give them that same sense of, oh, wait, I know how the magic shop version of this trick works, but I don't know how He's it works. He's doing something different. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, you know, the move where, where, uh, the performer holds the key ring and you get to do uh, the, the link, and link you get yeah. to do the crash link i mean i almost wet myself <laughs> when when shoot did that to me in that hotel room because here i am going you know, I'm holding what's obviously a solid ring, and I'm going tap, 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 and, and I'm thinking, where is this going?
2: Yeah,
1: Nothing's going to happen. I know how this trick works. I'm going to go tap, 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 and nothing's going to happen. He's, he must have some gag or something that he says here. And instead, I went tap, tap, Link. And I would have loved to have seen the look on my face when on that third, what I thought was a tap, suddenly there was silence, and now we're through and I'm sitting there holding one ring of a, of a linked set, I'm sure I looked like I'd just been punched in the gut because <laughs> I just remember my head had kind of exploded, and I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah, I have no idea what's going on here. I remember that feeling, and that's the feeling, you know, hopefully that we give to our audience members. Yeah. Um, so stuff like that would probably surprise you if you saw it in my hands. Um, but I like it. You know, I, I really like it. Uh, you know, that type of magic. Um, I respect mentalism uh, a tremendous amount. I consider Michael Weber a dear friend. I consider Eric Mead a dear friend. You know, those guys can have a kidney if they ever need one. Um, and they both are some of the finest working mentalists, uh, gosh, of the last, you know, quarter century. -hmm. Uh, Weber, longer than that. I think Eric, you know, obviously kind of made his name as a bar magician at the tower, but, uh, you know, has become a a world class mentalist. I look up to both of those guys. I just don't do mentalism. You know, I love learning about it. I love reading about it. I like the methods. I like the thinking. Um, I understand that at its core, it's magic. You know, it's just we're all doing impossible things or seemingly uh, doing impossible things. Um, But uh, I just don't do mentalism. So, uh, there may be one or two or three tricks in my repertoire that uh, you would you would look at and you would say that's a mentalist trick, but that's it. You know, I uh, I certainly don't do mentalism uh, in the true sense of the word. Uh, I'm interested in it. I would kind of like to do some more mentalism, but um, I'm not a bandwagon guy. Yeah. So while the rest of the world is looking at whatever the hot new topic is, I try very hard to go in another direction. Give you a good example Um, Rubik's Cube magic. Mm -hmm. I was interested in Rubik's Cube magic 10 years ago. Um, Didn't do a lot of it, but I was interested. I I was reading about it and I was studying it. And I learned how to, uh, gosh, it's been longer than 10 years ago now. Uh, Summer in 96, it's been 20 years ago. I'm way off. 20 years ago, I learned how to solve a Rubik's Cube and I was thinking about magic things I could do with a Rubik's Cube Um, and did it secretly. For myself, never really performed it, yeah. uh, but did it secretly for myself for years and years and years. And now, of course, because of uh, Steve Brundage uh, doing all those fantastic things on uh, Rubik's, uh, Rubik's cube magic and Carl Hine and these guys that have really taken uh, Rubik's cube magic and shined a big spotlight on it, I'm now not interested in it at all because yeah. it seems like everyone's doing it. So. Uh, 10 years ago, I would have been at the forefront of that stuff if I had had access to these guys and had some really good ideas. Uh, and these days, uh, I got excited about it again a year or so later when one or two people started cropping up with things. Now, unfortunately, it's like the next big thing, and I want nothing to do with it. Yeah. So it's, I'll still do it for me, and five or six years from now, when no one's doing Rubik's Cube magic because they're all on to the next thing, yeah. it'll just be guys like me um, and guys like Steve and, and you know Carl Heine who it's a big part of their acts. Yeah. But since it's a bandwagon item right now, not interested at all. Sure. And minimalism is kind of like that for me. You know, I could have gotten on that train a long time ago, but it always seemed like everyone was doing it, uh, and so um, I just kind of stayed away from it. And uh, it's still a big ticket item, but now I'm kind of fearful that if I don't do a little more minimalism, I'll never have the opportunity uh, because I'm just getting older, you know. So I like minimalism, I want to do some of it. I like parlor magic, I want to do some of that. And I'm slowly trying to get out from behind the close up table and stand up more and do more great classical stand up magic. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a struggle because, uh, you know, I've done. Uh, classic card magic and classic close-up for so long yeah. that it's hard to give up something you know inside and out, and yeah. sometimes take risks with new material. Even if the trick is a thousand years old, it's still new to you. Yeah, you know. So uh, there's all sorts of stuff I'm interested in. Are you going to try and bring that stuff from the table up to? No, I mean some of it, sure, yeah. but but for the most part, no. It's kind of hard to make the ambitious card play big. Yeah. For an audience of up to twenty or thirty people, it can be a miracle. Yeah. For three hundred people, it's a guy on stage doing double lifts and tilt, and it doesn't really play all that well. I mean, yeah. could you do it? Sure, I guess you could pull it off. Yeah. But why not just do something they can see so much easier? Yeah. Uh, so, no, I'm interested in parlor magic, uh, but I'm not going to try to. Uh, I'm not going to try to shoehorn a classic close-up trick into a parlor format. Okay. Um, it's uh, I would just assume you know do do close up magic when they're up close do parlor magic when they're fifteen to twenty feet away and you know I'll probably never do big box illusion stage magic type stuff but uh, you know if you're working for really big crowds that's when minimalism starts to shine yeah. because minimalism is is it's ethereal and, you don't have yeah, to see ex- yeah exactly you don't have to see it it's and these obviously these are very general terms but in minimalism I think it's a lot more important that people. Hear you and understand you, and then see certain things, you know, see what was written down, see that the audience member is doing what you say they're doing, or that you're doing what you say they're doing. But really, you can almost listen to a good mentalism trick and get a, a lot of uh, magical impact out of it. It's hard to listen to a close up trick and get uh, magical impact out of it. You really need yeah. to see close up. And for the most part, you need to see parlor magic. Uh, mentalism, obviously, there's a big visual component. Uh, to certain things but for the most part it's really more important that you can hear what's going on and you'd still get a lot of uh, great impact from knowing that that person thought of a word and the magician wrote it down and showed it to the audience and it's the right word Mm. you know if you were just sitting in the front row listening to that trick you'd be like man that's cool how does that work yeah you know you don't even have to see anything so uh so the The more interested I am in working for bigger audiences, the more minimalism is appealing to me for that very reason, is that now not everyone has to see. Yeah. Um, You know, but, uh, uh, and like I said, you know, parlor magic, platform magic, that sort of stuff, same thing. Uh, You can just play to bigger crowds. So, But I'm interested in stuff like uh, the Himba Rings. I'm interested in stuff like um, Magic Squares and the Chess Knights Tour. And, uh, you know, I'm interested in... uh, you know all sorts of uh, stand-up uh, classical magic. Not necessarily like rope tricks. You know, I, you know you're not probably not going to see me do a cut and restored rope anytime soon. But uh, I mean, I, I have an intellectual curiosity to it. But that's sure. it's just not the thing I would talk about. Yeah. Um, but uh, but you know, I I do have a fascination with a lot of that stuff and. Um, and it probably surprises some of the people that only know me as a, as a guy with a deck of cards and you know doing bottom deals and push through shuffles. Yeah, you know? but it's trust me, it's all there. And we could put together a whole. You know, we probably put together two entire shelves of, of books from my library that have nothing to do with classical close-up you know yeah. now there's 950 other books that do have to do with classical close-up but for the most part you know we could still put together a lot of magic off these shelves that have nothing to do with close-up magic you could put together 10 acts uh, probably in an afternoon from those books and i just got to get in there and find all the good stuff yeah so
2: well
1: right. there's a
0: there's one more thing that i wanted to ask about okay. but if you don't want to talk about it that's fine no okay. i don't know how to not like I, I can just take all of this part out if it's not sure. something. But, um, Sub Rosa. Okay. There was like people that I know were like, why are they putting that out? It's such a big secret and this, all this.
1: Uh, happy nonsense. To about it. Okay, yeah. Uh, the story that I told, I think I told, I haven't actually watched that video in a while, but I think I tell the story, um, of how sub rosa came to be so sub rosa is uh negative strippers it's you know that concept has been around in the gambling world for well over a hundred years in a refined way it's been refined for over a hundred years now the concept itself i don't really know how old it is it may be two or three hundred years old but in a refined sense it's been around for at least a hundred years uh so not only has it been out there but there's been work on it for a century so um I've known about it for a long time. Um, I probably learned about it in a couple of different ways. Uh, years ago, in 1991, I wrote a letter to Ed Marlowe asking him about something I had seen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he explained the concept of negative strippers in the letter that he wrote back to me. This was in uh, September or October of 91. He died just a, a month later on November 7th of 91. So that's the first time I really remember being aware of what negative strippers were. And of course, they're described in... Uh, in the Vernon book, in um, one of the uh, Vernon Chronicles, they're mentioned as bathroom strippers. But mm-hmm. they never use the term negative. They don't really talk about how the cards were cut. He just mentions that some old gamblers would go into the bathroom with a playing card, and they take a broken piece of glass and scratch yeah. the side of the card. And for a long time, I kind of thought he was talking about w- making a standard magic shop wedge stripper. Yeah. But then I realized that that doesn't make any sense because you'd have to have the whole deck. But one card in the bathroom, what can you do? Oh, I wonder if he's talking about that thing Marlo told me about, negative strippers. So I've known about it for 25 years. And in, I don't remember the exact year, 2008, 2009, 2010, something like that, Jonathan Bain, the CEO of Theory 11, he and I were talking. He said, are there any real secrets left in card magic? And I said, sure, depending on how we define real secret. Mm -hmm. And he goes, well, give me an example. I said, okay, negative strippers. He said, what's that? I said, see, I just proved my point. You're the CEO of one of the biggest internet magic companies in the world, and you've never heard of negative strippers. There, I just proved my point. And he goes, no, really, what's that? And I go, okay. So I showed it to him. Mm -hmm. And he said, this is really cool. How come I don't know about this? And I said, well, because only sort of the card dorks know know about this and you're not a card dork you know and i said and and even some of the card dorks don't know about this because it's kind of arcane it didn't really come from magic even though there's scattered references to it um lots of guys just don't know about this they've heard of wedge strippers which you can buy in the magic shop they've heard uh some of them have heard of belly strippers Mm -hmm. which are some cards are wide and some cards are not wide And a few of them have even heard of end strippers, where you're stripping cards from the short sides of the deck. I said, but even a lot of classically trained card magicians don't know about negatives. Because A, they're hard to pull. Mm -hmm. And B, they're really hard to conceptualize in your head. If I just described it to you and never showed it to you, I don't know that anyone would understand it. It's kind of hard to understand how they work, how they're pulled. So he goes, this is great. Um, I've never seen this before. I said, well, there you go. There's an example of something that is still... A secret from 95% of the card magicians on the planet. Mm-hmm. Now, the other 5% that know about it will tell you that this is old hat. And it is. Yeah. But for 95% of the card magicians on the planet, they never heard of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he goes, great. Uh, let's do a video on it. I said, nope, not interested. He said, why not? I said, well, because it's been a secret for 100 years. I don't want it out there. I still use this. On special occasions i don't it's not in every deck i own yeah. but i still use this when i really want to beat somebody up bad because it's such a cool thing and they don't know about it and he goes okay well if you change your mind let me know all right i i will but i won't you yeah. know I, I will let you know but i'm not going to change my mind forget about it so like five years goes by and yeah. he asks every six months hey let's do that negative stripper thing nope not interested um and other people had mentioned it in print long before me. Sure. People had mentioned it on DVDs long before me. Um, Gino Minari, who lives here in town, even put out a DVD on the subject. But I, I don't think he sold that many copies. And he didn't really sell it to the the serious card guys. He just sold it to people that came into the Houdini's magic shops in Vegas. So he's selling it to civilians, essentially. Yeah. And you know, uh, the good guys knew about it, but the average card magician still didn't know about it, even though it had been in print. Um, and so uh, finally, uh, something happened. I got wind of another magic producer that was going to do a DVD on negative strippers, mm-hmm. and it's someone nobody likes. I won't bother to say his name here. But most of the people that know me know who I'm talking about, and it's a guy that's ripped off lots of people. Um, I-, I can tell you who it's not. It is not Penguin Magic. It is not Murphy's Magic. It is not Illusionist. Uh, It's not Vanishing Ink. All of those companies are are run by by good people. It was none of them, but there (laughs) is it wasn't Dan and Dave. (laughs) Dan and Dave, yeah, Um, it was not Dan and Dave. Uh, So I'm friends with all of those. I don't really know the Illusionist people that well. Um, but I'm friendly with everybody yeah. except this one guy that nobody really likes he's not that active in the magic world anymore but he ripped off everybody 10 years ago 15 years ago nobody likes him and the smart people can figure out who I'm talking about uh, this guy stiffed everybody um, and really ripped people off left and right so I heard he was going to do a video or someone was going to do a video through this guy um, and I was like you gotta be kidding me this idiot is going to put this out there for everyone to mm. see. I'm like, all right, look, if it's going to come out anyway, let's at least do it right. Yeah. And so it was actually Jonathan Bain that told me that this was coming. And I'm like, all right, if it's going to come out anyway, then I'll do it Yeah. because I would rather see it done correctly and done respectfully, respectful to the history and respectful to the people that have already known about it and kept their mouths shut for all these years uh, if it's if it's gonna happen, let's at least do it right, and let's preempt this idiot that's been ripping people off for many many years now, and uh, hopefully we'll take the wind out of his sails. But that's the only reason I did it was a it was a, a counterattack. Yeah. Um, so. Um, we filmed it and we did it and we, you know, we had a guy that uh, cut the cards for us and all that, and he did a great job for a guy that had to cut, you know, 2,000 decks of cards. It's it's hard to do fine fine work when you're making that many of them, but he did a pretty good job. With uh, I'm happy with the cards that he made and I'm happy with the instructional video and all that. And the other guy's set never materialized. Mm-hmm. So either he just dropped it for whatever reason, or we did exactly what I wanted to do, which was make sure that he wasn't able to screw this up Yeah, um, by putting out his shitty version of it. Um, now, I have found out since then that some of the companies that I just named, like Murphy's Magic, were trying to do uh, negative stripper videos at the same time. But I never knew any of that. So um, I was not trying to prevent Murphy's Magic from doing a a negative stripper video. And in fact, if you had come to me and said, hey, Murphy's is going to get someone to do a negative stripper video, I would have probably said, well, that's too bad, but I'll help them any way I can because I like those guys. Mm -hmm. If you had come to me and said Penguin or Vanishing Inc. wants to do a negative stripper video and they've got someone to do it, I would have said, let me let me help in any way I can. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sad to see it come out, but I'm not going to stand in the way of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to try to talk you out of it. Here's the information I have. Just do a good job with it. But this idiot, um, I didn't want him to uh, have any success with it at all, so I basically stepped in front of him. Yeah, uh, and that's how it came out. Um, And to this day, I still think it's a good secret. I still think it's something. Obviously, I've shined a little spotlight on it here in the last year and a half or so. But, uh, you know, give it five years. It'll be back underground. Oh, yeah. You know, magic goes through these cycles where certain things are interesting. And, I mean, think about it. Somewhere right now there's a 10-year-old or an 11-year-old or a 12-year-old that's not into magic but he will be tomorrow or next week or next month. And he will go through this slow discovery process that we all have to go through in magic. And five years from now, when Subrose is not a hot topic, it'll be a secret from that kid once again. And it'll be a secret from that generation once again, unless they stumble across one of these products. So I have no, uh, no problems with you know, shining a brief spotlight on it. It did what I wanted it to do. It kept this moron from making a nickel off of it. And it'll go back underground again because yeah. it's hard, for one thing. you know, um, you got to actually do something to your cards. That's another thing. Uh, and then it, it has limited application. Um, the applications that it does have are phenomenal. And I'll fool anybody with those applications mm-hmm. if they're not aware of negative strippers. But let's face it, it's limited application. It allows you to get four or eight cards anytime you want from the middle of the deck to the top. That's yeah. all it does. Now, with that, you can do miracles. But that's really all it does at the end of the day. Um, but I, uh, you know, I uh, have no problem, you know, to this day, uh, to prove that it's still a secret, even though I've exposed it in a big way in the last eighteen months. It's still a secret. I guarantee you we could go to Magic Live next year, 2017, Mm -hmm. and we could walk up to every single registrant and say, what are negative strippers? And every time someone describes them correctly, I'll give you a dollar. Every time someone says, I have no idea what you're talking about or says, oh, I think I read about that, but I don't really remember, you give me a dollar. Want to play? No. No, you don't. (laughs) Because we're going to find 100 guys that understand it, and we're going to find 1,500 guys that don't understand it. It's
0: still a secret. To be fair, you could say that about a lot of things. Of
1: course. Of (laughs) course. Yeah, you could say that about so many items. But that just proves an even larger point, is that almost everything is still a secret from some subsection uh, of our magic population. But I think you know, negative strippers... Uh, because here's the thing ask every single person in that room what a stripper deck is Mm. they'll know that sure they know they all know what a what a regular wedge stripper deck is yeah they'll explain that up and down they'll tell you exactly what you can you know how you can pull them and all this but just throw the word negative in there what are negative strippers and they go oh uh i don't know i think i didn't someone put out a i don't i don't know That'll be their answer for yeah. for eighty five percent of the population. Uh, that will be the answer. Uh, and five years from now, I'd probably even give you ten to one odds. I'll give you ten dollars for every person that knows. You give me a dollar for every person that doesn't know. I'll still make money. Yeah, you know. So uh, so that's just sort of the nature, the cyclical nature of secrets in our business. They get popular, they go out of favor, and the really good ones can remain secrets for a long, long time.
0: Well, thank you so much. Do you feel good?
1: Yeah. Yeah. How long was this? We've been talking for a long time.
0: Well, we... Yeah, so about two and a half hours Will what we done after the tour.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. So... Probably leave the... Leave some of the... Leave the tour stuff out. Okay. Because I said a few things that I would not have said if I had known the uh, microphone was running. I mean... 90% 90% of the tour, you could leave in. Yeah. But there's a few things that I said where I actually wondered. I wonder if the mic's running. <laughs> pretty pretty standard uh, operating procedure to let the mic run during rehearsals and, you know, or let the cameras run during rehearsals. You mm-hmm. know? In, the, in the movie industry, always film rehearsal because what if you nail it? Yeah. Now there's no reason to shoot it again. You nailed it, you know. So always film rehearsal. So I suspected that the mic might be running, but I wasn't sure. But, yeah, leave the tour out and let's just just pick it up from when we sat down. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, thank you
0: so much, Jason. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it.